Hello, and welcome to the Cocktails and Conversation podcast. I'm Dana Marie Rockmore, the founder of the Dinner Party Project and co-founder of The Welcome House. I'll be inviting intriguing guests over to my home to chat about some of my favorite things, cocktails, story, the Enneagram, and rest. Hello, friends. Thanks for continuing to listen in. Hopefully, you're having a wonderful summer. Um, I am in Northern California these days, and it's been such a pleasure to chat with friends along the way and such a pleasure to see people that I care about. So today is no exception. Um, I made up a, my guest today is um, Chef Tony Adams, which I have known for 1 million years approximately. Um, but we made a, up uh, our own variation of my very own favorite cocktail, which is no surprise has been featured many times on this podcast, which is a whiskey sour womp, womp, womp. But, uh, we, if you want to follow along, you kind of can, and you kind of can't. So it's going to be great. But, um, as you know, the basics of a whiskey sour is, uh, an ounce and a half of bourbon, which we used wild Turkey, um, which Tony, you will learn has got about uh, an insane amount of bourbon in the room that I am sitting in currently. But, you know, you choose your own adventure and you choose what bourbon you have at your disposal. Um, we paired that with a uh, 0.75 ounces of a what's called a Verju. Um, and you will learn more about it. I will not uh, rehash it because I don't know all the things, but <clears throat> we replaced, uh, what would be a lemon or a lime, uh, citrus flavor in with this very tart grape extract situation. So if you can find Verjou, God bless you. If not, you can just use, um, you know, a citrus of your choice. This verjou was paired with like a raspberry blackberry, which I am always about a fruit in a cocktail. So yes, thank you. And then Tony also makes this smoked maple syrup, which you can buy. So that part you can achieve. And I used only a half ounce of this uh, instead of like a simple syrup and it's delicious and very smoky. So if you like a smoky cocktail, ding, 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 you will win with this one. It's very good. So we combine those simple uh, ingredients with um, an egg white and then a couple drops of bitters, which his old company was called Big Wheel Provisions. So this was an old uh, bitter, honey bitters that he had around. But you do whatever you have on hand and it will not disappoint as uh, I have many a times uh, made and enjoyed. And then my guest today, I enjoyed thoroughly. He is a chef and a teacher, um, an entrepreneur, a friend, all the things, but Chef Tony Adams has been doing culinary things I learned today since he was about 14. So there is so much to be learned um, of his cooking adventures and his life adventures. So all the things will not disappoint, and I do hope you enjoy. Uh, cheers. All right. Tony, welcome Hi. to the conversation. <laughs> Cocktails and Conversation podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Cheers. I'm, I'm happy. Cheers. 
Salud. Salud. Uh, mm-hmm. Do we remind, or are we telling them what we're drinking? Mm-hmm. Would you like to remind them and tell them? Well, we're going to do it together. Oh. Yeah. Do we but have to come for, up with a name for this? first I was going to taste it. I know that you've already tasted oh, I've, I've, it. <laughs> I've been imbibing. I've been drinking since noon. Um, do, uh, do we have to come up with a special name for this? or like a, sh- I feel like we should. I, I definitely think we should. Because we very much made this up. Uh, was it, Oh, this is... Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, we are in California. We are. We are... Orlando friends. Orlando friends in California in Mill Valley, but on the Tam Valley side. On the Tam Valley. The Tam Valley side of Mill Valley. Are there sides? There are. People. It's the Tam Valley. Differentiate between. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Tam Valley is the lesser. Uh, Tam Valley is the lesser side? It's the lesser side. Although I don't know what the the other side is just Mill Valley, Mill Valley, I think. Um, So you're either on the regular Mill Valley or you're on the Tam side. Right, yeah. So I tell people I live in Tam, Tam Valley. I say I live in Mill Valley on the Tam side by the 7-Eleven. It's very... Are you trying to like (laughs) depreciate like... I just want to... I'm a lower the expectations and then exceed expect. I'm a go in, you know, don't, don't under promise over deliver. That's exactly right. Will. Yes. Under yes. promise over deliver is a great life motto. And so, uh, in many ways okay. <laughs> I've found, Fair uh, enough. yeah. So this drink is incredibly smoky because yeah. we can start with that. Yeah. We threw in some smoked maple syrup that I make that you make. Yeah. And, um, Something else they also made was a verjus. Oh, verjus, yeah. Verjus. Uh, so we did a little bit of our brambleberry verjus. Verjus is the juice of unripe grapes. It is very tart, wicked tart, as we say yes. in New England. Um, and so instead of, so we did like a whiskey sour, but instead of. We did a whiskey sour for sure. Instead of lemon juice, we used the uh, the verjus, which had been aged on raspberries. So it was unripe Cabernet Sauvignon grapes from Picasso Vineyards in Livermore, California. You're really over-delivering here. <laughs> <laughs> See? Under-promise and over-deliver works every time, most Fair of the enough. time, sometimes. You're doing it. Um, and we, uh, so we made the verjus. We put it on raspberries and blackberries for a couple of days. So bramble berries. And then uh, the smoked maple. You know, this has a little smokiness like uh, mezcal almost, right? Yes. I mean, it the first thing when I taste it is the smoke. Smokiness. Really? Oh, 100%. And I am am not really... It's delicious. Yeah. It's something that I would... Like, smokiness, like, is not in the cocktail uh, world for me. Something that's, like, something I naturally gravitate towards. Well, we're in California. But, it's very dry out. We are just at the start of wildfire season. The Dixie Fire raging in Northern California yeah. now. The largest ever single... So, uh, you know... Largest ever single wildfire in California history, uh, which seems to be a record that we break every year here now. And uh, so it's a little apropos. I mean, the world is burning. California is always burning (laughs) at any given time. One way or another. Yeah, for sure. Which is sad. It's super sad. Yeah, it's a beautiful place, but it never rains. I think I remember it raining twice during our rainy season this year, uh, which is typically January, February. Yeah, like rain twice. In Florida, it could rain twice in one day. Easily. Uh, Easily. Uh, You know, the interesting thing about living in Mill Valley, Mill Valley and kind of uh, the next town, kind of north, Corte Madeira, between kind of the city of San Francisco and then where we are, just north, um, we call that kind of the fog belt here. So it is, it is, wetter here than in other places 
Um, but a proper rain. Every day the fog rolls in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the summertime it's sixty three degrees here because the fog just kind of keeps it all at bay. But yeah, but it, but tell it, me I, twice. I don't remember. I have my uh, winter coat here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, you know, I go home to Maine, and my friends and family are all like, oh, "Man, how's the surfs up, California?" I'm like, "Raw, no, different, wrong part of California. It is." freezing cold here um but yeah it's it's you know the fog rolls in and it keeps keeps it better here than in a lot of places but there's just no water it's it's a super bummer at least now you know my first year out here i've been here five years almost now my first year out here there was it rained for five weeks straight and it was like really a lot of rain every was that unusual you know, it was certainly or unusual for me. Or do you have like me. May showers? Do you have, is the May showers a thing? Well, so, you know, January, February is the rainy season. It happens typically where, again, you know, you get those four or five weeks, those atmospheric rivers where they dump a ton of rain. It's almost like an Orlando rain, big, heavy, fat raindrops. Um, but instead of it being 30 or 40 minutes with 7,000 lightning strikes here, it just rains like that for hours and hours and hours on end. Okay. And uh, I mean, it can rain like that in Orlando, too. I've never experienced rain at that level outside of hurricane time. Okay. Like for big, for just on hours and hours. Just hours. In my experience in Orlando, which I was there for just under 10 years, it was... It would rain like that and then it would be done, you know, 30 yeah, minutes, every half day hour, hour, in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, um, yeah, enough. but here it's like five or six weeks straight of that. At least it was my first year and okay. it happened maybe the next year as well. But then last year it was pretty dry. And then this year, yeah, I only remember literally it raining, like physically raining for like a, full a rain day. day. Yeah, like a rain day, like twice. Which is great if you love like, you know, doing stuff Obviously, outside. Outdoor things. Yeah. But... Also, you need rain. Yeah, but bad if you're not hydrated. <laughs> but how does that affect things like growing, like in the ground? Yeah, super bummer. You know, um, so one of our favorite farms, uh, you know, that we shop with a lot for the cooking classes I teach and, you know, the the stuff that I do with food. Uh, one of our favorite farms, uh, Front Porch Farms, they're up in Healdsburg, about an hour and 20 minutes north. They're right along the Russian River, um, which is that whole area is known for great agriculture, wine growing region. They, they grow wine, but they also have incredible berries and tomatoes and just tons of produce. Um, we just heard that they're not going to be at any of the farmers markets anymore because they've lost all their water rights. Just to pull water from the river that their property sits on, they're not able to pull water from it to irrigate their crops. And so, you know, water is a hugely political thing. And yeah. Certainly here in California as well. Sure. But it's a it's a huge impact. Um, one of our other favorite farms, Marin Roots, who grows uh, really incredibly specialty greens and fl- edible flowers. They supply every single three-star Michelin restaurant in the Bay Area, which is a huge honor uh, and huge distinction compared to other farms in many ways. Um, they are trucking in water, one pickup truck full at a time. The owner, Jesse installed a thousand gallon water tank in the back of an old pickup truck and he is going to get water somewhere i guess it's two or three thousand dollars to have a tractor trailer full of water brought in and to do that three or four times a week would be crazy so he is now spending his days just going, going and getting to the water. find water. Yes. I guess there's a municipal source wherever he is where he can get up to a thousand gallons a trip for free. So he is filling this up, trucking it back and forth while his wife, Moira, um, who typically Moira. does. Yeah, Moira, super rock star. Great name. She um, she is tending to the farm in addition to raising a couple of kids. And uh, she's doing doing a little bit more of the heavy lifting on that stuff. Although they both, you know, farming is incredibly hard and they both do all that work. But, right. but water stuff as a chef right now is super high on the list of like heads up you know like um even in Sausalito at the hotel that I work at um you know the lawns are crispy green and 
they've we're in the national park the golden gate national park and they've asked us to stop watering the lawns and so it's a big thing it's a huge thing and uh you know I, at this point i'm i'm firmly staunchly planted in my belief that you know climate change is real and uh i have a lot of family and friends that live in places where it's not as evident but it is incredibly evident here climate change is real and um you know it's it has upon a us. real life effect on people's Incomes, yeah. livelihoods, yeah, health, recreation, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know. I was, mean, California is burning. California is literally burning. We were. I was in Tahoe last week, uh, camping with uh, some friends, and we were staying at a reservoir, Giant Gap, um, and uh, you know, the reservoir that we stayed at, we picked a specific campsite because it was supposed to be right on the water, and you know, a, a thirty foot walk to the water to fish and to have a kind of private beach at that mm-hmm. site. The water was 300 feet away, 100 yards away, because the reservoir was 30% empty. Shrunk. Yeah. The shoreline was 200 feet of mud and dried, what, dried, silty, very fine sand that typically is 20, 30, 40 feet underwater. Yeah. um, Super scary. In fact, it, you know, we kind of ditched camping a little bit early. It was uh, not an enjoyable, it was like, it was not super amazing. So okay, super bummer in many ways. Great. But there are a lot of great things about California, <laughs> <laughs> uh, including this cocktail. Including this cocktail, we that's digress. smoky. <laughs> yes, that is smoky. The Mount the Mount Tam uh, um, the Mount whiskey Tam sour. Whiskey, Mount Tam whiskey sour. Yeah, whiskey sour. All right, fair. Cheers. We'll cheers, cheers one more time. Cheers. Cheers. Yes, as we continue cheers. on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's pretty delicious. It it is it's very mezcal-y, I think, with a smoke. It is. Feels very mezcal which I like mezcal. Yes, um, you I know, do not. You know the Edwards, Kara and Mike Edwards? Yes, of course. Cocktail aficionados. In the yes. Room, they are big into mezcal. So. Mm-hmm. As is Shout a lot of Orlando as well. We've got some really great places that serve a lot of mezcal. Yeah. And uh, do it right. There's yeah, there are a couple of... Ray, yeah, I think that's the place I've been, been a raised? couple times. Yeah, when okay. I've been back in town visiting. Yeah. For sure. So yeah, you've got a big Mezcal program. Are you gonna are you gonna do an introduction of me before this whole thing starts? You're gonna explain mm-hmm. to the, the listeners the, yeah. all the crowds, who I Get am ready. and how we know each other. Yeah. Or are we about to do it? Or are you gonna do that in uh what they I think the Call people post. call it post. Yeah. Like they call it post, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yep. I was just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> now we everyone t- knows. Yeah, we took a picture. I don't yeah, I was, I was we, wondering how yes. if this is that gonna translate. To my podcast. Well a picture is visual and podcasts are audio i thought so but we need also both. visual it's yeah. yeah we need auto and visual okay yeah i can't survive i mean i guess this podcast can't really survive without both of those things it probably could yeah it feels like a strong feels like a strong but it needs outer. like a photo also along with this audio i mean you have say, incredible microphones you have a whole team that helps you put this together you have yes. you use words like post uh-huh. um and uh i was trying to show off and i said levels instead of sound volume i said the level how are the levels um who even you knows? seem to understand i so, try the best that i can yeah. but uh it's out there for for the world yeah. to enjoy hopefully if we've had who any knows? listeners at this point they're probably gone as we <laughs> continue worm to our way through chat. <laughs> as we worm our way through the mindless details so we have in this cocktail which is one of my so you may or may not know this totally fine but a whiskey sour is my favorite cocktail oh i did not know yes I'm telling you, like, I love bourbon. Okay. And I'm sitting in a room, literally, guys, surrounded by bourbon. We'll get into <laughs> that in a second. So, I, I, yeah, I love bourbon. And then a whiskey sour with an egg white. 
um, is my favorite cocktail. Yeah, you said no, no to aquafaba. I did. The chickpea water. I mean, I will do it if somebody is in need of it. If you're sans, if you're without egg, but shockingly find yourself with a can of chickpeas. <laughs> <laughs> Which I also love chickpeas, so I usually have one on hand. Sounds like a vegan dream. Right? No eggs, but chickpeas. I or... am not in any sense of the word vegan <laughs> or any anywhere near that. But I, I do love a roasted on the stovetop chickpea frizzle. Like... Frizzle. With like garlic and onions and oregano and herbs. Like yeah. Just like, yeah. Like a saute is another oh, word. Yeah. You crisp them up and it's almost like a snack. Oh. Yes. It's so good. Olive oil. Okay. We are really digressing here. <laughs> okay. So this cocktail has got, so, okay. We, we can dive into the amount of bourbon that is in this room sure. at this time. Yeah. And the one that you picked for this moment. Yeah. I picked you, We the, have to like, Oh, we got to sell it. We got to, we got to work no, on we it. We have right. to like first divulge why there is this amount of bourbon in one single apartment <laughs> and second the one that we chose for this sure yeah Mount so Tam yeah whiskey I, sour i have been uh collecting bourbon since probably 2010 uh i got into bourbon right as i was kind of getting ready to leave orlando um she, you know the very famous chef sean brock who i was really into like his work for a long time was and, he on chef's table uh, he was. Yeah. Yes, definitely um, saw him. And David Chang, of course, of Momofuku yes. fame. Those guys kind of started to kind of really talk about bourbon and hype bourbon up. And the more I learned about bourbon, it was right up my alley, right? It was an inherently American product. So it was, you know, and not in the sense of the term local. As a chef, I'm always looking for local ingredients. But the idea in the spirits world of something that was only American felt kind of really cool, you know. Um, and so I started to kind of enjoy that. The idea that uh, there's collectible bourbon and bourbon that you can't just always get whenever. Um, there's something that speaks to me in the same way that seasonal ingredients speak to me. And so the hunt for special bourbons uh, really spoke to me in that level. So as I started to learn more about bourbon and kind of uh, get into bourbon, it was about the hunt and the chase for bourbons and that kind of thing. And the excitement to find a bourbon you've read about or, or heard about uh, to find it quote, you know, the term is in the wild, which is, you know, the, when you find a bourbon, it's hard to find at a liquor store okay. at or close uh, to it. normal suggested price. retail price. Got right? it. Got it. Uh, that's, that's a huge high okay. uh, in that sense of the term. But um, so I kind of like that. It's about the chase of finding something you just can't always get and uh the it's, exclusivity dare yeah. dare we shall I, we say yeah i think so for sure it's it's uh you know i always kind of describe that with ingredients as it's it's a it's a blue you just don't that doesn't come in the box that you buy right you have to like seek out this one specific blue or you gotta you know or you gotta buy the expanded crayon pack to get this one specific blue and so with you know you can't you can't get the right exact shade that you want without this one blue and so um so it very much feels like that with bourbon the chase anyway um uh it, it it checks all the same boxes as for me when i'm looking for special ingredients you know in the same manner so okay yeah got it so we picked uh so so all of that to say so i started collecting back then i i ended up working with one of america's best bourbon bar restaurants on nantucket the boarding house 
where the owner uh, is one of the biggest uh, purchasers of bourbon on the eastern seaboard and has access to all of the hard to find bourbons. Okay. Um, and so I was really lucky to, to at least see those bottles and kind of uh, taste through some of them. He was very specific about what he would let out into the world and behind the bar at the restaurant. Um, but to have access to some of that stuff and to taste some of that stuff, it was it was, you know, uh, it wasn't quite worth the amount of trauma it was to work there <laughs> in many ways, but, uh, but it enough. was, but it was, it really was able to kind of, for the first time, put bourbons in front of me and understand quality differences instead of tasting, buying one bottle at 30 or $50 and running through the whole bottle and then buying another bottle for $30 or $50 and then tasting that bottle, but not understanding the differences, the nuance mm -hmm. differences between being able to sit at a bar that has, you know, some of the best bourbons available at the time and taste six or eight of them side by side is mm. such an educational experience. So I really got into it. And then uh, uh, when I taste six or eight at a time. <laughs> <laughs> By the end, you there is remember. no difference. Yeah. <laughs> the trick is you got to do it fast enough before before it hits, right? So uh, you got to get into it. <laughs> the end of the tasting is a blur, but the start of the tasting right. usually you take good notes. But um, but yeah, so I kind of got into it, and it's just been a great thing that as the I end of the tasting is a nap <laughs> for, <laughs> for <me>. sure, <laughs> for sure. Uh, but you know, it, it's been one of those things that as I've traveled and lived throughout the country, after that, you know, I spent some time in you know, Maine and Pennsylvania and um, now in California, it's been one of those things that even as you travel, um, you know, bourbon releases are often regional. And so able to pick up things you can't find in this space and that space. And, uh, you know, um, was lucky enough to spend a lot of time in Kentucky as well. Of course, the home to much of America's mm -hmm. best bourbon. Um, so I kind of got into it. So, uh, yeah, I think I've got probably close to 200 bottles here. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got another probably hundred or so back in storage in Maine. Nothing crazy special back in Maine, but stuff that like 30 years from now would be stuff that will, people would be interested in maybe, but, um, all the all the don't touch this stuff is with me here. <laughs> so um, and it's just kind of a fun thing. You know, uh, when I'm on road trips, you stop into a liquor store and you check it out. And uh, yeah, it's like a collectible. Yeah. I mean, sense. well, it is. Well, and the value of them is increasing and increasing, increasing. So um, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article last year that said that bourbon is a better investment than the stock market uh, most of the time because the appreciating values now. Um, you should be noted you are not allowed to legally sell uh bourbon person to person uh and so there are channels to do it on the gray market through various online social sites none of course which i participate in <laughs> i well, there are only on my radar so that i can avoid them explicitly uh, are we going to be having a conversation via phone to phone <laughs> with a glass pane in front of us no because i don't do any of those things some people do though so Got it. uh Got but it. the inherent it is value, out there it, you've heard of yeah yeah for sure i mean but uh but so so, so yeah, so I enjoy that and it's fun. San Francisco is a nice, obviously metropolitan area. You know, the cool thing is, is you can find anything you want here in San Francisco for the most part. It's just um, everybody charges what we call secondary pricing. So nobody charges anything at retail. Um, so anything collectible, you're already going to be paying kind of black market prices on it, even through a liquor store, um, unfortunately. Wow. So it makes the score of something at retail that much sweeter. Um, and in the wild in the wild hey. that's exactly right hey fast learner uh, but you know for me it's uh, that's happened a handful of times since I've been out here and it's always really awesome and uh, it rides the next you know two dozen liquor store stops where you don't find anything mm -hmm. um, worthwhile um, so 
but uh but yeah so we got a lot of bourbon here um for our cocktail we chose wild turkey uh what was it the kentucky spirit i think it's called which is uh it's a beautiful bottle uh wild turkey it's of very course much art Whoa. deco yeah you know uh they just actually read i think they redid the bottle more recently this is a release from last year uh from or from 2018 um the great stuff about this is that uh, kentucky spirit is their single barrel line so you know wild turkey jimmy and eddie russell father and son duo their master distillers they uh you know they have a great tasting panel that they go through at wild turkey and uh you know they identify these barrels under certain flavor profiles for certain brands or as honey barrels, which is kind of the term for a really great barrel of bourbon. Um, and better than average barrels often are reserved for something called single barrel. So they take all that bourbon and instead of blending it with other barrels to create mm-hmm. a uniform product, mm-hmm. they say, hey, this is a better than average bourbon. Uh, and they bottle, you know, anywhere between 100 and 200 bottles, typically depending upon uh, the evaporation into the barrel. Um so they've identified this as uh, as really delicious single barrel quality. Um, and I thought since we're doing a cocktail with uh, some non-alcoholic stuff, we want to kind of bump up the proof a little bit. So this is bottled at 101 proof, uh, which is nice. I think when I do a cocktail, I don't like to go too low of a proof. If we were to do an 85, 84, 90 proof bourbon by the time you get the other stuff in there. And I like my cocktails on a cube. Uh, uh, or at least mm-hmm. shaken with ice. And so by the time you proof that down, I don't want something that ends in the 60 proof range. I like a little, just enough to, just enough to, uh, to let me know it's there. So, uh, so it's but, definitely there. Yeah, it's definitely there. But that, it's nice. You that a, plus the smokiness. Yeah. Yeah. It's and the, there. The sweet of the smoked maple syrup was mm-hmm. really good. And the verjus, the tartness of the verjus has been nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I really love the texture of the egg white in there. I think that was a good choice. So. Why, thank you. Yeah. Yes. Compliments all around. Okay. So, wild turkey, good stuff. The Kentucky Spirit. You know, uh, they do a, a rare, uh, I think it's called the uh, Rare Breed, which is their barrel proof uh, bourbon, which would have been what great. What does barrel just, proof mean? So barrel proof means, so when this comes out of the barrel, uh, a single barrel just means that all of the bourbon in this comes from one barrel. It hasn't been blended with other barrels, but they could proof it up or proof it down with water or they would proof it down with water. So it might come out of the barrel at 120 proof, but they add enough water to bring it to 101 proof. Um, Why would you do that? Uh, to stretch production. Oftentimes also if the alcohol is too big, um, Scotch drinkers fan will add a couple drops of water to their scotch because water will often open up the flavor palette if the alcohol okay. is too forward. Okay. Um, and so as a bourbon drinker myself, anything over a hundred proof, um, uh, I won't drink neat mostly. I'll usually add either a little bit of water or put it on a cube uh, so that it proofs down. I just find that the alcohol is a little bit too big above 100 proof um, in most cases. Okay. So, uh, but barrel proof is, uh, they don't they don't proof it down with water at all. So it's literally the barrel strength. And most distillers will put bourbon into a barrel by law. It can't go in above 125 proof. So depending upon where in the rickhouse that barrel is aged, mm-hmm. either the barrel will evaporate more water out meaning that the proof will grow to higher than um, 125 Mm -hmm. or more alcohol will evaporate out meaning that the proof will come out lower than 125 lower, right and some some distillers will barrel at 107 proof i know weller bourbons uh, made of buffalo trace the so weeded bourbons wo wellers those typically go into the barrel at 107 they say the water has better interaction with the wood so you get a better flavor I, you know it's it's there are a ton of variables when it comes to bourbon um but uh but 
that those barrel-proof bourbons are usually have the best flavor profile pretty high up. So, um, you know, you, you typically would look at a barrel-proof bourbon, 116, 118, anywhere up to 140. So 140? Yeah. Whew. Yeah, it's called hazmat. Anything above Whew. 140 is called hazmat. It's, and like, it's yeah. It's, it's big boy. <laughs> Or big girl. I mean, we don't Not get for me. big, big non-gendered per- person. A thing. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, we, no reason to gender Human, our bourbon, right? Right. <laughs> right. So it's yes. big either way. That one for but. me would be um, only a couple sips. Yeah. Or else. Well, that's what home you need. Girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this girl will be on the floor. Well, you're about one third of the size of me. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, that's, that's understandable right. for sure. Fair enough. Um, so our our cocktail is uh, bourbon, this delicious um, smoked maple syrup, which you can find on millvalleypasta.com. Pasta. Com. Com. That's right. Yeah. Great, Great enunciation there. <laughs> so we did that together. Great. That was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And then something that you made up on your own. So basically, we're the only ones that are going to enjoy this. Well, you know, we had. Uh, I think I made instead six... of, instead of a citrus like a lemon or a lime. Right. We did the we, we did the brambleberry verjou. Right. right. I uh, I'm sold out of that. I only made six bottles of it, and I don't intend to make more. So if you don't have it, it's gone. Uh, sorry, not sorry. Right. But pick up uh, pick up some lemon juice or make a whiskey sour, or you right. can use regular verjou. Or you know, there are a lot of different options out there for the How sour. How would you component. find a verjou? Like I don't. I don't in you can, cooking. I literally I'm not... buy anything on Amazon.com. So That's true. Not that we want to plug Amazon, but you know, uh, any specialty, a, a good specialty here, gourmet. <laughs> not not to space. You. Don't spend the money to go back to space again. Just get out. Just, just you're, leave you're somewhere. You're already out of here. So. Leave somewhere, but stay on the planet. But go away. Oh. Right. Uh, you know, a good specialty gourmet store. Of course, I mean, you'd be able to find it on the internet somewhere. Uh, in Orlando, there was a great specialty shop out by the airport. We used to uh, work with. Um, whose name I can't remember, but they they have Verjou, yeah. So there's out somewhere out by the airport, somebody's okay. selling Verjou, great uh, in Orlando. But yeah. So other than the cocktail that we had tonight, um, could you give me maybe like would there be two to three places in Mill Valley? All of Mill Valley, both sides both of Mill, sides. right? This part of sure. SF over here. Sure. Like, where would you go grab a cocktail with a friend or on a date or whatever? Yeah. Uh, after work. Yeah. There's a great place here. Uh, a restaurant that punches way out of its weight class uh, just in every aspect called Floodwater. Uh, okay. It's a great restaurant owned by a great restaurant group that will have several of the restaurants in the area. It's weirdly built into the side of a Holiday Inn Express, which is so <laughs> weird. But it's an incredible restaurant. It's a. If you were walking to that restaurant, you would think it was an incredible standalone restaurant or a restaurant at a, a, a really nice hotel. But it is, in fact, at a Holiday Inn Express, which is very weird. I mean, so, a really nice hotel. I mean, yeah, right. yeah, for many business for many, travelers, it is a great right. option, right? <laughs> so those guys uh, have got great drinks, great cocktails. Um, another great place here in Mill Valley, La, uh, Playa, which is kind of a, a Mexican-style restaurant, really high-end mm-hmm. uh, stuff. I was mentioning to you earlier today, uh, I once sat next to Carlos. Santana. Oh, like, he yeah. sat next to me, actually. Fair I was enough. there. He came in behind me. Uh, Fair enough. And sat next to me. So, uh, good celebrity spot there at Playa. Um, and then, you know, there's a handful of great restaurants downtown. I haven't been to a ton of them here in Mill Valley. There's a bungalow. Or, uh, bungalow. So there's a restaurant that has bungalow in the name that okay. uh, if I had to go to a restaurant I've never been to, that would be a good one. Um, I mean, I saw a bungalow today that just said bungalow. 
it's it, there's a number involved in the name okay. of this restaurant. Okay. Uh, I can say there's a restaurant called Farm Shop not far from here, up in Larkspur. It's about 15 minutes north. It's a great, great spot there. There's a uh, same group that owns a, a farm shop down in LA. Um, the farm shop up here is a little bit different than that spot, but it's same owners, same people, same base concept, and uh, they've got great cocktails as well. And you know, if 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 I'm really going all out on the cocktail like train, uh, Trick Dog is right in San Francisco in the Mission. Trick Dog, they are not open. Well, they're not open right now. No, number one. Did you bar know in America. what girl tried to go there? Uh, this one. Oh well. Now and guess what? They are <laughs> not open right now. Uh, although they do have a little takeout window uh, where you can get some cocktails to go. Uh, our mutual friend Shana and I were over that way having dinner uh, a couple weeks ago. And we swung through for a pre, pre-drink, pre pre-dinner drink over there. And, yeah. Um, I tried to make that happen, but it did not happen. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I know, me too. Yeah, make your way back that way before you go. They're doing like cocktails to go or something that are super cool. Right, just one for the road. I guess. Or yeah. the walk. I mean, it's San Francisco. There are no rules. You can drink it down the sidewalk. No one's going to give you a hard time. Right. I mean, people are shooting heroin and, you know, uh, drugs between their toes in certain places in the city. Not that I advocate for that kind of thing. Yeah. But no one is going to give you a hard time about drinking a cocktail down the street. So I know, but like... I want like the, the experience. <laughs> well, if you want the experience, you got to shoot heroin between your toes. So that's. I'm not here for that experience. I'm here. I was hoping for the trick dog experience. What would, but that, what would that podcast be called? <laughs> Conversations at heroin. <laughs> Conversations and being passed out with your parole officer, would yeah. not, which would not be half as interesting yeah. as this. Yeah. Are you at all a home bartender? Like, no. If you come home, do you ever have like an after work drink? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, for me, if I'm going to drink, it's almost always a Manhattan. And when I'm drinking at home, especially if I'm alone, it's usually an upside down Manhattan, which is, uh, you know, typically a Manhattan would be an ounce and a half of bourbon, uh-huh. uh, half ounce or two thirds of an ounce of vermouth bitters and, uh, you know, uh, a little cherry Cube. or something. Yeah. was sure. Uh, no, that's no? more old fashioned. C- C- Cuba sugar is an old fashioned, okay. I think. Uh, but so for a Manhattan, so I kind of do an upside down one because, uh, oftentimes, it, you know, I got work, I, I work a lot. So, um, I'll do the ounce and a half of vermouth, uh, Carpana Antica or Antica Carpana, whatever the Antica, the Carpana, the Antica, I'll just call it Antica, uh, out of Torino. Uh, so I do an ounce and a half of that. And then I kind of keep the shy portion on the bourbon end. Um, uh, I like yeah. two Luxardo chairs because I deserve mm, nice things. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the Luxardo chairs. Although today we use the Trader Joe's because they got the stem. They made a prettier picture. They did. Which are, I could eat. Yeah, I could. These, I these just already ate mine. Yeah. I've already. Yeah. Yeah. I found a I've been one, doing so the drinking. You've been doing the talking. This, which is why I'm here. That's what I do. So, <laughs> I <know>. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. But so, yeah, so I'll have a Manhattan. But, you know, um, more often than not. I'm a beer guy after work. Uh, uh, if I'm going to grab a, a drink, I feel a little bit less um, like a derelict human being if I have a beer by myself than if I'm drinking cocktails and spirits by myself. Why? Yeah, I don't know. Never it's, say that sentence you know again. It's that Christian upbringing I had uh, where we didn't drink at all. We didn't have a drop of alcohol in the house growing up. And so maybe there's a part of me that somewhere oh, deep down gosh. inside there's shame about drinking. I don't know. 
There should not be. No, I, no, I, I, I did agree. so much drinking by myself during the quarantine. <laughs> so okay. I was like, what time is it? I yeah. Here I am by myself. I will be ready. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I pretty just, good um, at it. I drink, drinking for me is more of a social thing. Uh, and, you know, obviously I buy much more bourbon than I drink. It's uh, the motivation well, for buying clearly. bourbon is not drinking it necessarily. <laughs> clearly. But, uh. I was like, if you stopped purchasing bourbon literally in this moment, you would have enough to fill several lifetimes. Oh, yeah. For oh, me, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I, and again, I, I, I might have one drink a week. Um, that's not a beer. Uh, I probably have a one beer a day after work. I probably average a beer a day after work. Okay. Um, most of the time. Um, Fair enough. It's a good, good little way to finish up a really rough, weird day, which happens often in my world. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, thank you yeah. for sharing all the things. What's your second favorite cocktail behind a whiskey sour? Do you have a second favorite? Oh, that's a good question. Um, It might be the, it might be the elderflower martini. Oh. Yeah. So I, you like the sweet stuff. Oh, yeah. I do. I love the florally. Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. um, fruity. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, yeah. So, I mean, I like things a little bit like tart but not super tart and definitely not so for one nobody cares but tequila and mezcal like just aren't my friends oh. like i just don't feel great when i drink them they're not your friends in in hindsight not so much at the time you're, you're okay with them and you're good it's Somewhat. just like the, the hangover like, or i don't really care for margarita like i'll have a paloma i would enjoy that sure um but I don't like, I actually don't really like the smokiness of mezcal. Oh. I don't really care for it. Um, I just don't like tequila. So one, if I'm going to spend my money out, it's not going to be on something that I don't really like. Okay. Okay. Um, Maybe and, you're drinking the wrong tequila. I, I think I used to feel that way. And then the guys who own this bourbon bar and restaurant in, in Nantucket, they also had a Mexican restaurant where they had incredible tequilas uh -huh. and somebody, I had a house account where I had X amount of credits and I was never going to spend it all. So I went and I was like, I won't give me like your two or three most expensive tequilas. And it was like $80 for a two ounce and sipping Oof. this mez, or sipping this tequila was a life changing experience. And I love, I mean, a little Don Julio, what is it, the eighteen ninety two or whatever? That stuff is delicious. But there's some other really great. Uh, of course, I can't think of the names now, but because I'm not, I don't live in the tequila world regularly. But um, just some really great sipping tequilas out yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, if you're existing on the bottom of the barrel of the tequila world, of course you're not going to love it. But I also think that I've had some pretty good tequilas and like i say like if it's in a mixed drink that is more on the sweeter side than sure. on like the whatever side anyway this is a very <laughs> boring conversation but um yeah tequila is just People know, mezcal is just not really my go-to yeah. yeah fair enough tequila i will have in a in a, in a well-crafted cocktail but often it's just not really my choice. Like I would rather do rum or gin or vodka or bourbon. I mean, bourbon's my number one. There you go. Okay. So we are going to continue to the next part of this conversation, oh. which is story, which oh. is fascinating on every level because I think that every person obviously has a story so and that we are, right we are put on this planet. We don't really get to choose where we get placed, 
right? We don't get to choose our family of origin. That's true. We don't get to choose our DNA. We don't get to choose our socioeconomic status. We are placed on this universe. And like every other human being, we are trying to figure it out from there. Sure. So I would love to know in a concise Tony Adams manner, um, we don't have a full hour to to divulge, which I know we could feel easily. But what was kind of your family of origin like? Like, where were you placed in the universe? Do you have siblings? What was like zero to ten? What was like? Tony's existence <laughs> like. Oh, man. Yeah. I, uh, we spent some time talking about this earlier today. Uh, and More than I, I had ever known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's but a now lot. I know. Yeah, family talk is weird around me a little bit. Uh, that to say, uh, I grew up in central Maine. Uh, my parents were very uh, young when they started having children. and Very so, young. Uh, yeah, quite young. How young? Well, you know, my parents were married... I think a significant portion of my dad's senior year of high school, my mom was a year older than him. And also my dad had stayed back. So my mom had been a year and a half out of high school. And, uh, so they had had a couple of attempts at children beforehand. And, uh, you know, in fact, a year before I was born, had a child that unfortunately passed away after, after birth, which was tough on them. Um, so I came along, I think my mom was 22. So my dad would have been 21. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and already having had a child, you know, birthed and then passed away. So, uh, which is mind blowing to me. I can't imagine. At I mean, 20, I'm, at that I'm age. 40 and I like, I'm like, well, should I get a fish again? I don't know about the responsibility. Fish is tough, man. You know? <laughs> so I can only imagine, um, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. My brother's three years younger than me. My sister is eight years younger than me, but only up until maybe last year during the pandemic, uh, for my whole entire life, I had been telling people my sister was nine years younger than me. And only it was only last year I realized it's only eight years. So uh, bad at math, evidently. But um, but yeah, so I grew up in central Maine. Um, and people, you know, I always tell people, they say, oh, Maine is beautiful. I love Maine. Maine is, and I, my response is like, well, you know, I grew up in the meth and trailer park part of Maine. You know, uh, Central Maine. Fair enough. <laughs> Fairfield, yeah, Fairfield, Fairfield. Maine. Fairfield, Maine. Uh, Yikes! Which you know is uh, it's a very rural, blue collar. I think most of Maine is very blue collar, um, rural uh, kind of red state kind of ripeness uh, north of Portland, <clears throat> which can be tough. But yeah, grew up in a very religious household, um, kind of in Central Maine, and and knew I wanted to be a chef when I was fourteen. So. I kind of, from that moment on, understood, at least at the time, there wasn't any big, great food stops in Maine. And so it was like, uh, I kind of had accepted that I was going to get up and get out of Maine as soon as possible. Um, and so I did. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. How did you show up in like middle school, high school? Like if you already kind of knew your trajectory, like how was it that you were like, okay, now I have to like exist in the place that I am until I can get out of here <laughs> yeah you know but like I think, uh, who were you during those years i think if you were to look back at my middle school so i went i grew up going to private christian school there were something like 10 of us that had all gone from nursery school through the ninth grade together and this private christian school wasn't like a, oh we're rich let's send our kid to private school it was like a we don't trust the public school 
you know, to mm-hmm. teach you like we don't believe in evolution and we don't believe in sex ed and all these things. Um, they're probably going to want you to be, you know. It, it, so all that to say, I basically went to church school from kindergarten through nursery school through ninth grade when the school then shut down and I went to public school. Um, so in junior high, it was. It was with these same 10 or so kids that I'd grown up with. We went to church on Sundays. We all grew up playing sports together. This All these same families. And so it was closer. It was very much like siblings in many ways. And there was the hierarchy of all of that. But it, I was always struggling because I wanted to play sports. And, you know, there weren't a lot of sports at the school. And when the few sports we did have, it was like cross country, which I was not good at. <laughs> Someone's got to come in last in those cross country races. And it was often me. Um, But it was about the socializing. You know, we lived way out in the country. You know, the closest kid that lived next to us was a couple miles down the road. And so, you know, I would have rather run cross country and been around kids my own age, hanging out and playing in the afternoon than been at home alone or something. Mm -hmm. Or at my dad's, you know, my dad had an oil delivery company growing up. And so it was like, if we weren't going to be there, my mom was working. So it was like it was be at be at the office or be running cross country or playing right. soccer, which also requires a lot of running, which I also was right. not good at. Um, and so it, it was just one of those things. So it was like playing sports with a lot of the same people. And, you know, I mean, I still have some of those friendships, which is great. And those are lifelong people that I, you know, I, have, I haven't seen many of them in 20, 20 years, but could walk into a room and and probably shoot the bull with for for an hour or two or three hours and just talk about the shared memories we have we went on a missions trip to the atlanta olympics and we're almost blown up in centennial park we were in centennial park that day wow um we you know all kinds of youth pastors that we had and just stories of all growing up together so so that was interesting but but when the school closed after the freshman year high school I was happy because I wanted to go play baseball at the public school. I was big into baseball. Okay. And so I was happy and everybody else was devastated to the point where all of the parents Did got they together. Did they go to public school? Well, that the school was closing uh, and it, they just closed the high school. So it was so, uh, so it was just the high school that was closing. Got it. Uh, and so all the parents banded together and started a new regional private Christian school. And my mom even sat on the board and uh, one year was like the principal of the school, but it was big news when I decided or when I said, I'm going to public school. And then I very distinctly remember my parents having an argument about it. And my dad was like, he's going to public school. And I was like, whoa, 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 that worked. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I went off to public school to play baseball and a couple other kids ended up going to public school too and did their own things very successfully. But that regional school started in, you know, my brother ended up going there and my sister ended up going there and it was kind of always existing in the background. And, uh, you know, me and my mom were very close, but I, I knew it hurt her that I didn't go there because she was so involved in the planning of it and the starting mm-hmm. of it and the support of it and sitting on the board and things. And so, you know, religion played a huge undertow in my whole life growing up um, in some good ways, but also in a lot of kind of really detrimental ways as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so stepping out and questioning my faith through junior high and then also high school, it didn't get easier. You know, it was a pretty totalitarian household growing up. And so, um, by the time I was ready to go, I was ready to go to the big city of Providence, five hours away. And Providence, looking back, is a really you small. went to high school in Providence. Well, I went to college in Providence. So, oh, so, college. so when I got okay. up, so when I got up to go to get got out it. to go to college, it was like I'm going to the big city of Providence. Leave me alone. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know, it was far enough away that 
when there were emergencies, I could call and my parents would come running and they did often. And that was incredible. Um, but it was far enough away that it really gave me a chance to explore who I was and what that looked like. Um, but it, it did feel a little bit like destiny that I was able to get up and get out and kind of exist on my own. And, and that way, um, being far from home and kind of the rules and the, the things that existed back there. So, um, for a long time, there were two versions of Tony. There was Church Tony and Maine, and that was very close and parallel to, to Maine Tony. Maine Tony and Church Tony were pretty close. And then there was Chef Tony, you know, and kind of the existing ah. culinary um, And if you've ever read anything by Anthony Bourdain, you understand mm-hmm. kind of the debauchery that happens in kitchens. And while, mm-hmm. I, while I certainly didn't partake in most of those kinds of things, they were around and I certainly could have. But um, I credit growing up the way I did with keeping me from doing a lot of those things, but being around those things, you know, certainly exposed me to a lot, but, um, but it's where I developed an affinity for the F word and for, you know, uh, all of those kinds of things. And, uh, but also where I met some really incredible people that were gay and that smoked weed and that drank a lot of beer and maybe had a problem with alcohol and that stayed out too late. Um, and at the end of the day, they're all really great people. And that really was a shift from what I'd been taught growing up. Mm. And um, mm-hmm. so, so it was, it was a huge shift from junior high and high school. Um, and, uh, and I was, and I'm probably better off for it, I think at this point in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And then how did you shift into the culinary world? Yeah. You know, it was, I was at this job shadow that I did when I was 14, I think it was 13 or 14. I was in seventh or eighth grade and I had to go to, to do two job shadows. One I did with a photographer um, and I had a great time with him and I still enjoy photography and still like that world. But then I had to go do it at a restaurant. And for the most part, I was standing in the corner bored out of my ever loving mind um, and just watching people cook in a restaurant on a Wednesday afternoon in Waterville, Maine. And it was boring. And I, you know, I always tell the story, somebody, one of the cooks walked by and was like, Hey man, do you want a soda? And I kind of said like, Hey, I, I don't have any money. He's like, no man, like you can have a soda. And I was like, Oh my God. And in <laughs> looking back a lot in my life at this time was motivated by soda evidently okay, because I thought it was the greatest gift I've ever been given. And uh so I got a soda, I sucked it down and he walked by and was like, do you want another one? And I said, I literally said, uh, no, man, like I said, I don't have any money thinking like the first one's free, but he's going to charge me for subsequent <laughs> ones. He was like, dude, you can have all the soda you want. And uh, it was like cherubs formed around the halo in my head. It was like, oh. <laughs> um, to add to that, I don't know, half an hour later, like seven trips to the soda machine and half an hour later, one of the other line cooks walked by and was like, hey, dude, do you like croutons? And I was like, what? And she like reached her hand into the bucket of salad bar croutons and like just started munching. And I was like, oh, my God, I can eat all of the salad bar croutons and drink all of the soda that I want. Like, this is it for me. So <laughs> it, it's, this is 100% a true story. John Martin's Manor, right on College Avenue. Uh, no longer there, but it. It was, uh, I just kind of thought like, oh, this is a huge perk of something I never thought. Like, this is kind of cool. And they had kind of had some curse words and they were joking around and having fun. And you're like 14. And I'm 14 and I'm not right. allowed to swear, right? It's like, right. mom, uh, Tony said the, the SH word or mom, Tony said the D word, you know, and it, it, we were all very tattletale at that point in life. But sure. Yeah. Um, oh, I thought you were going to lean and go, shit. <laughs> but <laughs> I can, I, but... Are we going to beep that? Anyway. Um, no. but, it, but so when I started at public school, I was able to do Votech classes. Yeah. A culinary arts program. And it immediately became apparent that the, those Votech programs in many cases, and certainly in the case that I was in, 
were a dumping grounds for the kids who weren't going to be successful in traditional school. And so, and a lot of the kids that had behavioral problems and, you know, stuff like that. So I was stuck in a class. I was, I was the culinarian, like going to want to learn about braising and mirepoix and soup making. And I was in a class of 10 other kids and nine of them were like, cool. I got to go to rehab this weekend. My parole officer, my probation officer, like I've got to, I got to leave early on Tuesday, Miss P, you know? And so the teacher, I had a great teacher, Miss Pelletier, who really saw that I was interested in it and just gave me so many opportunities. So I really excelled there and uh, competed even and did very well in competitions, you know, placing high in competitions in high school. Um, it wasn't until my senior year, one of the, I was kind of known as the cook guy, uh, the chef kid in school, uh, you know, kind of everybody plays their role in high school. And I was, mm-hmm. I was the culinary kid mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the, the most popular girl in school was in my English class and I was never real popular with the ladies. And so she said something about, oh, well, if you could make me a white chocolate raspberry cheesecake, like blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I can do that. Game you on. pay for the ingredients and I'll do it. And I'll never forget. I ruined it three times. I think I spent probably a hundred bucks. I and mean, when you're 16 or 17, a hundred bucks is like, it might as well be a million dollars. Right. And, you know, we lived, lived 20 minutes from town. So it was like every time I ruined the cheesecake, I'd be like, mom, we got to go back in town to get raspberries in, you know, March in Maine. Um, and I got to get all these ingredients again. I cracked this cheesecake. Oh, my God. Well, I ended up making one finally that was fine enough. And I drizzled chocolate over the top. And I put it in my mom's Tupperware uh, uh, cake server thing. And I brought sure. it to school. And I, I had it. Uh, I, I kind of asked one of the teachers to stash it in the office until I was ready for English class. And we brought it in English class. And I'll never forget the English teacher kind of let me like present it to these popular girls. And when I opened it, there was this audible like, whoa. And the teacher that day stopped class and we all sat around and ate that white chocolate raspberry cheesecake. And, uh, were you feeling like a million bucks? Yeah, that I mean, more. I, it was are like, you still I was chasing? Like Jeff Bezos. Are you still yeah. chasing that feeling? Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, lots of therapy ever since has <laughs> kind of concluded that. You know, I think I mentioned this to you earlier today. Like, I don't to this day. I don't know if I cook because I. I don't think I cook because I love the process of cooking as much as. I love that smile. And frankly, I love the attention it gets me. It's like the shortest path to attention, to being able to make people happy, to bring joy into other people's lives. And for the rest of my life, certainly, and I would like to think that to a certain extent for the rest of, you know, Amber Lavasser's life, she remembers this white chocolate raspberry cheesecake that we brought in. She's thinking of it right now. Of course. Obviously. She's sitting 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 at home in uh, Maine thinking... I wish I could Life have would Tony's. would only be perfect if Tony's re- white chocolate raspberry cheese. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The rest of her family and successful career mean nothing. Uh, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I, for me, I love to insert myself into situations that will end up with people remembering uh, me and who I am and what I've done. I've always been concerned about like, what's my mark going to be on this world? Um, it was a big part of why I enjoy teaching uh, and mm-hmm. I've, I've been teaching for so long, but mm-hmm. um there is a self-serving moment of I do it because I'm so worried I will be done in this world without ever having made an impact. Mm. Um, and so it's always been, it literally has always been chasing that high of all of a sudden the six, four to six popular girls and everyone in my class and the English teacher who hated me because I was failing, who literally failed me to the point of me getting kicked off the baseball team my sophomore year. The whole reason I went to public school, she hated me and I hated her. But in that day, 
it was like everything was right because you were the hero. White chocolate raspberry cheesecake made its appearance and I had made it. Oh, so hell yeah. Uh, it felt like, wow, I can, I can, you know, solve world conflicts with <laughs> food here. And, uh, and I've been chasing it ever since. So I do yeah, wish a, that was... that's a big part of it. Yeah. So how did that bring you to Orlando, Florida? Yeah, uh, I was running a restaurant in, uh, I was running a jazz nightclub in Providence. That was, it was a nightmare. It was my first head chef job and I was bad at it and it was a bad restaurant and it was owned by bad people and it was just sounds a nightmare. Like a, yeah, yeah, it sounds was, like a nightmare. It was like, you know, Providence mobsters and all kinds of crazy things. And, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, my mentors, uh, uh, Tyler Brassel, Lauren Falsonahoy worked at, uh, worked with at Empire Restaurant in Providence that had just recently closed. Um, they kind of worked me into this head chef job, and but they had moved to Florida where Lauren had gotten a big job with Darden and the Seasons 52 folks because mm-hmm. uh, she had a big enough name. She She's, you know, Food and Wine Magazine, you know, award winner and all these things. So. This episode of Cocktails and Conversation is brought to you by The Dinner Party Project. The Dinner Party Project is all about connecting humans around the dinner table. Right now, we are mostly based in Orlando, Florida. Whether it's joining seven strangers in an intimate setting around a dinner table or sitting in the street of Orange Avenue with 100 others watching flamethrowers, we love helping people feel connected to others and their city. We also offer private parties, so if you have a birthday, anniversary, team-building dinner, or corporate event coming up, we can create a custom, memorable event that you and your guests won't soon forget. We also help brands connect with their consumers by exposing their product in an elevated way to their target demographic. So if you live in the Orlando area and haven't joined us yet, what are you waiting for? We can't wait to hear your story around the dinner table. For more information, you can visit us at thedinnerpartyproject.co. Tyler was kind of hanging out down there and ended up getting a job at the La Cordon Bleu. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he kind of saw me in Providence struggling with my first head chef job, but knew kind of what I'd gone through. I'd, I'd spent some time in some really great restaurants in the world at that point and was really struggling to serve stuffed mushrooms and white chocolate mousse, you know, in Providence. And it was uh, February, I think, when he first called me. He was like, hey, bro, they're hiring at the Cordon Bleu. It's three weeks of paid vacation a year. It's uh, all your chef jackets embroidered, laptops, business cards, you know, uh, over time is like 45 bucks an hour. And it was like, you know, I'm scratching, I'm scratching being a head chef for 17 bucks an hour in Providence in the winter time. I just got in a car accident, so I didn't have a vehicle. It was, it was a comedy of like nightmare. And so I was like, move to Florida and, you know, in March. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll be right down. Um, when I got down there, evidently it, what was, what was really unique. I had done a quick internship at Disney, uh, my sophomore year of college for a couple of months. And when I got to the La Cordon Bleu in Orlando, all the people that were interviewing me to hire, I had worked with them at Disney, um, as an intern. So I kind of knew them ish and they knew me ish. And so it was a pretty easy transition to get down to Orlando. So that's how I got down to Orlando. And yeah, almost 10 years I was in Orlando. Mm-hmm. So a long time. Yeah. So, but that's, but that's, yeah, I, I got Cordon to teach- Bleu was how long? Cause I, when I met you, I think you were teaching at yeah. Le Cordon Bleu. Yeah. Uh, I was just, over, just about five and a half years at Le Cordon Bleu mm-hmm. uh, before I got, I got quit fired. 
<laughs> you got quit fired. Yeah, there's. We're not going to tell that story, but I got quit fired, and uh, I they were going to fire me, and I said, if I have to quit, I will. And they went, uh, okay, and I went, cool, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then uh, yeah, walked out. They didn't have to so, pay you severance or nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think severance was going to be on the table, but unemployment maybe, but, right. but none of it was on the table at that point. <laughs> so, but yeah, and then I transitioned right into Big Wheel. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I had been dating somebody who was uh, also a chef, and we had this dream of having a, whether it was starting, we talked about having a hot dog cart and then it was a food truck and then it was, you know, uh, a provisions company. And what it, where it ended up with is we both wanted to have a cheese shop and uh, cheese and like specialty goods. And so uh, I was doing a bunch of personal chef work at the time and um, wanted to be doing charcuterie and cheese and all these things and thought, well, if I start with the provisions, mm-hmm. you know, that's why we called it big wheels, big wheel, going to be big wheel cheese and provisions. So we started with big wheel provisions, um, and, uh, it started at the farmer's markets. And from there it grew eventually into catering and then, um, the food truck and mm-hmm. then the, uh, the different culinary events that we did. We had Orlando's first pop-up restaurant, Orlando's first underground restaurant, as far mm-hmm. as we know. Um, so, so yeah, we did some fun stuff for sure. Yeah. I remember Monday nights at Audubon Market. <laughs> Monday nights. Well, it was Wednesday nights at one point. Uh, was it? It was Wednesday. Uh, we we had done both Audubon Wednesday. Market. Yeah. Wednesday nights. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was uh, when we started. I believe it was Wednesday nights, and then it eventually moved to Monday nights. Okay. Wow. Um, Gabby Lothrop, who yes. uh, start helped start that market, mm-hmm. she had done a lot of research with um, Emily. Um. um Yes. Em- yes, Emily. Emily. <laughs> she Emily had had a, this woman named Emily had had a, a company distributing uh, local ingredients to restaurants, and so she and Gabby got together and started the Audubon Park Farmers Market. They had done a bunch of research, and research showed that the most successful farmers markets that people would support as a grocery store or at, have regular business mm-hmm. with were done at night during the week. So Wednesday nights mm-hmm. initially were the night that they did, and then I think for some reason, one reason or another, I think uh, the Part of it was the art gallery that had been there at one type uh, one point. Bold hype was the name of it, um, which was a great art gallery. Mm-hmm. They moved up to New York uh, City to to reopen up there. But but they, um, I think they kind of said like, look, Wednesday nights were open. This is a nightmare. Can you guys move to Mondays? We're closed. And I think we ended up moving to Mondays because of that. Yeah. So the more you know, the more you know. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? I just remember the fries on Monday nights. Oh, and the food truck. And the food truck. And Shayna. Shayna. Slinging, slinging fries and <laughs> being so delightful. And like what I think that was like such a special time. Yeah. There were a lot of special people involved in, in a, Audubon Market and uh-huh. at Goodwill. Yeah. And a hot, a hot, sweaty time. Yeah. Because, man, it's, it's brutal in the summer when you're like <laughs> sure setting is. up at like five yeah. and the sun is setting and it's like coming right at you and you're like yeah. unloading your car, but you're also, also sweating. And it's like a real cute moment when you're trying to sell like vintage clothes yeah. and everyone's like, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think it's any cuter if you're trying to sell Blackberry Jam than vintage clothes, but. But yeah, I mean, look, I think anything worth doing is worth hard work and Audubon Market was a lot of hard work, but I'm mm-hmm. super proud of what we accomplished. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, I, you know, I like to think of us as a cornerstone kind of vendor. I think before we were there, I met Gabby. I'll never forget Gabby was at Stardust. 
uh, having a cocktail one night and I kind of walked up to her and said, Hey, we were told you run the farmer's market. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, this is what I do. And this is what I want to do. And this is what I'm thinking. And I applied to be at the winter park farmer's market, um, thinking that since they don't have anything that's really local, they would love to have me. And mm-hmm. then they told me it'd be a two year wait. So like, that's crazy. And she's like, well, what do you do? And I was like, well, local pork and local charcuterie. And I want to have, you know, provisions and jam. And she was like, Oh my God, yes, please. Can you start next week? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that kind of, yeah, it was, I, I, when I was moving uh, out to California, I was digging through some old stuff and I came across the first menu, the first week we were open <gasps> and it was a dozen items. And, you know, I'll never forget, um, Leah, who was doing it with me, wanted to make pita chips. So there was the most incredible pita from Aladdin pita bread company. They make it out near UCF, but mm-hmm. they sell it at uh, the International Food Club on uh, LB McLeod. I can't believe I remember the names of these places. I haven't lived in Orlando in 10 years now, 10 plus years. But um, but she got the most amazing thin pita and would make these pita chips. And I thought like, okay, well, we're just trying to fill out the menu and it's local. So I guess. And I think that night we sold out of pita chips and every night for the next four or five years, probably we sold out of pita chips. And so it's that kind of stuff. Eventually we grew, you know, we would have 40, 50, 60 items yeah. some weeks and mm-hmm. soup and granola and jam and burgers yeah well eventually so that was the other thing when we started there i don't know if you know bradford white was doing vegan dinners Uh out of a little uh booth and they did that for the first couple of months we were there and then they decided to not do it and i kind of went to gabby and said hey well if if there's a vacuum that needs to be filled with dinners i would love to do dinners i'm not going to do vegan dinners i might do a vegetarian friendly dinner every now and again and i certainly like a restaurant can sub something out if i need to but we're gonna do one dinner a night mm-hmm. and that uh, will have bring 30 to 40 portions is that okay and she said yeah that's great so then we did that and the success of that is what built us mm-hmm. the confidence to do the food truck you know right. after selling again i think we sold out of dinner every night for a year and then the opportunity presented itself to do a food truck and it was like well we've been doing these dinners and people like our food enough to sell out a dinner every night let's let's do a food truck Gabby, what a local hero. Local hero for sure. And yeah. uh, I, I owe a lot of my success to Gabby Lothrop uh, and the whole team uh, of Audubon Park. You know, Audubon Park, if, for those, if there are any listeners still out there, uh, <laughs> Audubon Park is such a special place in Orlando. Yeah. Orlando has such a, all of the places I've lived around this country, everybody poo-poos on Orlando. And I always say to them, like, shut your damn mouth. Orlando has got some really incredible stuff, especially off the tourist corridor. And there's even great stuff on the tourist corridor, but especially as you step away from the tourist corridor, there's such amazing stuff. And to me, the majority of it is centered in and or mm-hmm. has spent significant time contributing to what is Audubon Park now. You know, you look at East End Market, mm-hmm. East End Market is John Rife, and a lot of those relationships were born out of relationships at least i understand and think of were started at audubon park farmers market you know and gabby was inherently involved in the start of that Mm -hmm. and so that's a super win um the folks who run the audubon park district are really incredible uh with what they do and supporting all that so and then the guys who own stardust coffee just allowing us to do that and so really at the end of the day it started with stardust coffee but then you know uh gabby's vision for for what that farmer's market could be um you know really I think if, you know, she will never get the credit from anybody that matters necessarily, I don't think, unfortunately, but uh, Gabby Lothrop, Gabby Lothrop single-handedly to me has changed the way Orlando eats for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was something that we yeah. set out to do as Big Wheel. That was literally our mission statement. We want to change the way Orlando eats. Um, uh, but we were one, one of Gabby's tools and so many more people did as well, mm-hmm. were as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
So how did you transition from that time? And then now you have been in California for five years. Like, what have you done? What, like, what is your, <laughs> what, have, I mean, that sounds like it's such a trite thing to say, but like, no. what, what has been your kind of journey and growth within this California Yeah. You know, season? Um, so moving out of Orlando, I, I headed to Nantucket. I chased a girl up to Nantucket and that mm-hmm. was I, it, more than anything, uh, maybe not more than anything, equal to anything else was the need to exit out of something that wasn't profitable for me. We never started Big Wheel with money. It was just like, okay, well, what can we afford to do tomorrow? And How do we do this from nothing tomorrow? And so when things would break, it was like literally the cheapest fix, which would then turn around and break again and then turn around and break again. And so I needed an exit and um, someone that I love very much at the time and still, you know, have love for, uh, said to me, Hey, follow me to Nantucket. And so I did and went back into running restaurants and, um, Nantucket's a beautiful place to visit, but working and living there is completely different than visiting on vacation. And Nantucket broke me as a human being. It broke me as a chef. It broke me as a human being. And, um, I spent three seasons out there. Yeah. How much time do we have? Yeah. Right. You tell me. Yeah. I think you're staying at my house for a couple of days, right? So part A, part B. Right. Um, you know, it, but it, it, yeah, it was, you know, some work weeks were 90 plus hour work weeks. A lot of them were 90 plus hour work weeks, which is, mm. um, uh, you know, every year, everybody ended up in the hospital at some point. You know what I mean? Um, I had issues with varicose veins exploding and, you know, we had somebody that, you know, had issues with, you know, uh, fell asleep driving and somebody, you know, has suicidal. Th- I mean, it's just when you're working 90 hours a week, it is it is impossible. It is completely untenable as a as a human being. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after three years of kind of living that life of just. I found myself mad that other people were happy and it was, I, you know, I would walk through the 10 minutes. If I would get 10 minutes to walk outside for a second, it, I would walk and everybody was having a great time on Nantucket. It was so fun. And I would be so resentful that they were happy. Why did they get to deserve to be happy? And why I deserve to be happy too, you know? And I just kind of stopped one day. I was like, dude, it is time to go. So, um, friends of friends of friends kind of connected me up with some folks in Hershey, Pennsylvania who needed some restaurant help and mm-hmm. what was meant to be a quick, uh, consulting project while I was waiting to hear about some personal chef work turned into almost a year in Hershey. Um, when that work was kind of finished up, uh, I knew I wanted to get back to teaching, you know, having kind of transitioned back into restaurants for four years. Restaurant Tony is very creatively fulfilled, but is a horrible human being to himself and often to others. And, mm. um, you know, it's not worth it for me, uh, to do that, to be Mm -hmm. that, you know, most of the time. So, um, so yeah, so we started looking for teaching jobs and, uh, this job, uh, for a hotel here in Sausalito opened up. They have a small cooking school teaching mostly corporate groups that are there for retreats. And so that's what I've been doing for five years doing that. Well, five years minus the 13 months of COVID furlough. So like the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but stayed busy during that too, with all kinds of other projects and launched Mill Valley Pasta. Yes, uh, that's what we're budget. here for. I want oh. to hear all about it. Oh, is that what we're here for? Yes. Oh, I thought we were here for bourbon and cocktails yes. and conversations. Obviously, oh. but also... Pasta. And I've had your pasta and sauce from afar in from Orlando. Afar. Yeah. And in Florida. I ship a lot of pasta but, in Florida. I would say uh, 20% of my business is from former clients and, and, and people in Orlando, either for themselves or sending it to people as gifts. And I'm so thankful for that. It, mm-hmm. it not only kind of reinforces the idea that we had an impact on what we were doing in Orlando uh, and is super kind of honoring. But, uh, but yeah, you know, the fact that we have repeat customers, mm-hmm. both for pasta and other provisions, it, it, 
you know, I talk a lot about impact in my life and my career and the impact I want to have. And uh, luckily, I've been able to leave. It seems like some type of impact in Orlando, which is awesome. So, but yeah, so now I'm I'm back full time teaching cooking classes. You know, uh, you know, some weeks it's four, some weeks it's zero, and some weeks it's most weeks it's a handful of small classes. And um, but then every waking minute these days is trying to grow and build mm-hmm. Mill Valley Pasta. So. Which is? Which is a pasta company. We've talked about <laughs> But tell us all the things that you offer within. I, I can't. You're not, you're so not we, just giving uh, us like a spaghetti. <laughs> Give us all like the. No, we have spaghettoni, which is a thick spaghetti. We do uh, 30 plus different shapes and flavors of pasta. Right. We specialize in dry. Right now, we specialize in dried extruded pastas, um, which means that they're not the flat pastas you see kind of rolled into a flat sheet and then cut into noodles. We, um, The machines that we have, the pasta machines will force assembly semolina dough so we use uh, 100% organic semolina and water uh, and that's it for our plain pastas no eggs so they're vegan friendly um, ah. mixes mixes the, the dough and then forces it through a dye that creates a very specific shape um, each dye is about so you uh, have to buy 30 shapes well so we have or- uh, I think it's like we have like 14 or 15 different shapes and then some dyes make a couple of different you know, depending upon the, the length we cut them. So we have, so say the Mafaldine die, which is a Mafaldine is a, a wavy edged, you know, quarter inch wide tagliatelle type. Noodle. I think that's what I'm going to make you for dinner tonight. I hope that's going to have some Mafaldine with lobster. Yeah, have chef I'm friends. already counting down the minutes of this podcast you, so I can have some. If you don't have chef friends, you should have chef friends. We, we cook for our friends lovely lovely dishes like lobster. Yes. So, uh, so we have that, but then, you know, I do a shorter version that I make a little two-inch noodle with the same dye, so it's like okay. that same with the same thing, and I call it scarabocchio. This is a pasta that I have made up. I have never seen this. I've never had it, but in I love the mefaldine, but Sometimes you don't want a long pasta, but I love the shape and the texture. So we just cut them shorter. We call it scarabocchio. And then in scarabocchio, I make it in squid ink. I make it in plain. I make it in smoked paprika. Ah, see, see, so see, it's see. one dye, but yes. I can get three or four different pastas Got out of it. it. You know, lumaki pasta. I have five different flavors. You know, the uh, orchietti uh, dye. I have, uh, you know, it's one shape. Uh, I do two different shapes out of it. I do both orchietti and i do uh, natili which is a nautilus shaped pasta and i make several different flavors of those so so it's 30 plus pastas i think it's 14 or 15 separate dyes that we have got it the dyes are expensive like 250 bucks a piece so yeah they're solid brass which leaves a nice rough surface on the te- on the outside uh leaves a nice rough texture uh, which helps it get nice and mm-hmm. it soaks up the sauce a little bit better gets very saucy so uh i don't know how that's going to be on the levels in post saucy it's a little crisp in the microphone, but uh, it's all staying in. So yeah, right, uh, we don't edit for content. Yeah, prove it. Um, but uh, see about that. but so uh, you know, so we dry these pastas and package them up and send them out. And then you know, I was just making pasta, and somebody said like, "Well, what's your sauce?" And so I started by making one sauce, and then the garlicky one, the garlicky shui shui, yeah, tomato shui shui. Yeah, um, shui shui of course means quick, quick. Uh, it's a quick cooking three ingredient tomato sauce, which is really delicious. And then, um, yeah, it's grown from there. Now we have four or five. We do puttanesca sauce. We do a, a sugo de fungi, which is with porcini mushrooms. We do yeah. uh, fresh tomato shui shui, where instead of using high premium canned tomatoes, I use you know fresh tomatoes. Only available in summer. Available right now, if you're lucky. Um, depending upon when you're listening to this, the masses out there. <laughs> but, um, you know, and then it was like 
other fun stuff. You know, one thing with Big Wheel that I love doing is something different every week. And so, you know, so we smoke some maple syrup and then we make, you know, uh, lemon salt and then we make preserved lemon puree and then I make verju and then mm-hmm. I got to do enough stuff that's different to keep me interested. Mm-hmm. I could make the same types of pasta over and over again and just be satisfied. Sure. I have to keep it different. It has to be something yeah. new. I want to, I always want to have something that nobody else has, you know, mm-hmm. it goes back to that bourbon thing. Like I want to have something that nobody else has. Um, uh, and that's unique. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the pasta we're making. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for all the things that you're adding into the world that you have <laughs> yeah. added over the years. Yeah. Well, and thanks for Good. being thanks thanks for being a big supporter of it for a long time. We've been, of course. Yeah, we've been friends for a long time. And, long time. Uh, I think you have certainly spread the gospel for the projects I've been involved in, and and likewise. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember the Burberry trench coat you sold me? Yes. I still it's in that closet right there. You, really? The, the listeners at home can't see, but I have a closet about ten feet to my left and uh and I wear it. And every time I wear it, somebody goes, What where what where did you get this? Uh-huh. We, don't, we don't expect you to be so fashionable, Mr. Adams. <laughs> and I say, Well, let me tell you the story of my friend Dana. Yeah. He came up to me one day and said, I have a trench coat for you. And I said, I don't really need a trench coat. I can't really afford a trench coat. And then you showed it to me and I went, oh my God, I need to buy this trench coat. And I think I it was it. probably only like $80 that yeah, I sold I it, to you. Yeah, I, I think it was like... I think it was 80 or 90 bucks. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. This is like a, a vintage Hinch. mid-50s or 60s Burberry, Burberry camel trench coat that classic. is so soft and classic yep. and timeless and I love it and mm-hmm. um, and it still fits mostly for the most... As far as I... <laughs> I think I look great in it. Uh, How could you not? Well... It's such as a I get classic in the item. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, but, but that's yeah. why it's got the tie. Yeah, so you can just tie wherever you are. Uh, it doesn't have a tie. There's it no doesn't tie. have a tie? It did not come with a tie. Oh, no tie. Yeah. I thought it did. Uh, do you it's, have an extra tie kicking around at home maybe. that you get like a vintage 60s Burberry <laughs> trench tie? I'll have to last check. Yeah. It's been many a years, but I'm glad it's still cook- kicking and that That's you're still coat. cooking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Mostly. I am always here for, and it's, and it's fun and funny that I also moved into more of your space which is just i mean i've always been such a lover of food but then it just kind of my life turned into gathering people around a dinner table which i think is so rewarding insanely and rewarding and important and i think if quarantine taught us anything whether you're introverted or extroverted like we need time with people sure and time around the table was just something obviously that i like craved incessantly and just being with people and like how food is such a aggregator and a beautiful moment to be humans. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a shared experience that I think, and, and, you know, whether it's one meal or just the, the idea of eating in general, we can all relate to eating. And it's part, it's oftentimes what makes being a chef difficult because people go like, Oh, well I can, I can cook a chicken breast. Why are you going to charge me 27 bucks for a chicken breast? That chicken breast costs $3 at, you know, stop and shop. Why can't I get it? Uh, Why you charge me 27 bucks? It's like, well, you, you may know how to cook a chicken breast in your way, but it's different than how we cook it. And, you know, we're doing the prep and all that. So it's a shared experience in many ways in that end, but, but we certainly can all relate to it. Mm. Right. And there's a bond that happens with over food. We eat when we're happy. We eat when we're sad. We, you know, we have food anytime there are multiple people gathered. There's always, mm-hmm. it's certainly not any food that is brought. It's, there's always a conversation like, Hey, do you guys want to go grab a bite or man, we should have brought some food or, you know, it, it's just one of those things that brings people together. Cause it's such a, a human element of mm-hmm. um, food and eating and all that. So it's important. And it, it, it was a big miss 
uh, you know, I certainly miss that kind of thing. I certainly miss teaching in my classes uh, during COVID. Uh, and I'm happy that, that that's all back, um, you know. But mm-hmm. food's a, a wide world. There's a lot, a lot of room to explore together or, or on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so. for being a part of that world. Yeah. And thanks. being a part of you too. my my world. And I think that even like in the like all those years ago, it's like I mean, Orlando has grown in some like incredible ways, which I'm so grateful for. And like having you being on, like I feel like on the front end of some of that was like just amazing. And just even with the food truck, having like new things every single week was <laughs> yeah. like. Yeah, I had a great always team. something to look forward to yeah you know the, the, it takes a great team and, and I had such a great team of folks Eric and Nikki and you know Jeff and it, there's so many people that, that helped Tim was part of that launching team for sure yeah part of the now great the great team at Luke's and Maitland yeah um, provided so much insight on the start of that project and then you know contributed so heavily and there were just so many great people that were part of all that that really drove that but again you know I, I think I've always been very clear that it takes great guests to takes great guests coming to the food truck and buying the new things every week guests like like, you know, sure. Jeff Matz and Cliff Manspeaker sure. and, you know, Gabby and Michael yeah. you know, and the Farmer's Market. And, yeah, without the support, without patrons, we're nothing. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and again, you know, uh, you know, Mimi and, and uh, Marty, who now live here in California and continue to buy my pasta, you know, they were great Big Wheel supporters and they followed, they haven't followed me. I actually followed them to California, but, you know, it's like she posted something on her Instagram tonight, like, oh, a Big Wheel inspired meal. And it's like, oh my God, like, she's making something that she had on the food truck 10 years ago. It's like, Oh my gosh, like, wow. So, so it, it certainly fit that impact, but, but without the great guests believing in it and without the great staff to help me do it, we mm-hmm. would have never been able to do it. You mm-hmm. know, every day it felt like, how am I going to do this? Uh, and even, even looking back, I go That's like every day, like how, how did we do that? Oh my God, that was horrible. Um, but there were these, you know, I always say people are like, Oh my God, you owned a food truck. How amazing was that? And I was like, the highest highs of my life and the lowest lows <laughs> as well. Uh, yeah. A lot of days it was a nightmare, but sure. but it was really cool and, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud but of it in many ways. made it happen. We made it happen. We I, made it I happen. I didn't make it happen. We made it happen. Sure. And that, that's a collective we. So yep. proud of, proud of, proud of we and proud of us. <laughs> but part of that is the part that we, um, you know, like contribute to that. And so... The next thing I want to chat about is the Enneagram. Oh, yeah. With yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did a quick Woo! deep dive right before quick we started here. Deep dive. Yeah. Which I have been in, into the Enneagram now for probably about five years or four or five years. It's um, like me and Koji, except I'm, I've only been in Koji for two years, but we, we'll do a deep dive in Koji post podcast. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Fair later. enough. Yes. Check out Koji to the listeners out there. So the Enneagram is a tool to help you learn, I feel like, more about yourself. Have you been sent here by my therapist? <laughs> is this a, is this a sabotage by my therapist? <laughs> no. 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 Okay, just checking. Just making sure. <laughs> no. it's Have just... you been sent here by my therapist's ex-girlfriend? A completely <laughs> different person, but also Fair enough. wants me to explore more of my emotions. Sure. Yeah. Um... Not that I know of. Okay. Yeah, That's maybe good. subliminally, but I just uh, in general have a passion for 
steepness and for people knowing themselves well and like just the better that we know ourselves sure. and the better that we can know other others and to be able to have better relationships and have more compassion and grace for our own self and our own stories. And then the yeah. better we can have compassion and grace for other people. 100%. And then what a beautiful world that would be, right? For sure. In, in a perfect world. Um. So the Enneagram is a rabbit hole because there is, I know that you kind of did like a yeah. cursory skim of it today, one. which I'm very like obviously passionate about like people, if they are into discovering it, sure. I am, I'm an, I am an evangelist <laughs> in that way. Um, happily we'll, we'll, we'll take that on. But sure. then uh, as people, I think dig into it, and then seeing them, I think, hopefully grow from it. That is the only purpose of doing it, right? Yeah, of course. So when you had a uh, a <laughs> quick look at it, what would be maybe ones that you would think that you might land on? Well, we Just talked about this. self-identifying. I'm going to make you tell me what you thought first because I, I, you, I said, oh, are there are a couple here. And you, I said I said something about to the effect of like, oh, I think I found a couple that I, that might apply. I want to dig a little bit deeper. And I said, did you do you have any that you think I am? And you said, right. oh, yeah, I think I, there are two that I think you are. So I... Uh -huh. It's certainly not going to change my answer, what you say, but I don't want my answer to change what you would say. I'd be so interested oh. to hear what you think uh -huh. on your end that I am. And I even said, like, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to write them down on paper if you feel like I'd be I'd work it out, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but but I'm interested to hear what you think I am. I mean, we've known each other yeah. long enough and you've seen me. You have seen me in work situations where, again, I am often a much different person than I am in social settings where we've also yeah. spent time together. Right. So in your opinion, what, what are the do, <laughs> what are there numbers that you sure. think I am? Yeah. If I were to guess okay. um, from knowing you for over 10 years, okay. probably much longer than that, I would say... Maybe the one the first one would be the eight, which okay. is the challenger. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so okay. very assertive, very self-confident, okay. um, wanting to do something different in the world. Um, very okay with conflict, maybe. And <laughs> <laughs> okay. Putting yourself out there. Okay. And the um, other number? Was a three, oh, which is the yeah. achiever, okay. which is you want to have a goal or have something that you're going after sure. and then just being able to find a way through hell or high water to make it happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So very good. Uh, I think the two numbers for me that I most initially latched onto as I okay. went through, and I should say, you know, we should tell everybody when I went through the list, it started chronologically. So it started one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So it does feel a touch biasing because I got to three before I got to four, before uh -huh. I got to five, so to speak. Sure. Um, so I felt, I initially stopped at three and kind of okay. read the quick description. I went, oh yeah, okay, that applies. Uh, and so very good kind of on that. And then I got to four and it felt like it applied more. And okay. so back when I thought, so sure. four is called what, what the was individualist. The individualist. Yes. And, um, and so, so that very wrapped that, up in their own emotions. Yes. And so world. That, so kind of in the one sentence blurb here, it says the individualist, uh, the sensitive withdrawn type, expressive, dramatic, self-absorbing, temperamental. <laughs> the only thing that I don't re relate there to is withdrawn because I'm about one of the most outgoing per people you will ever kind of meet on the surface. I do often withdraw my emotions and that kind of thing. So, um, but then there was a little quick thing as I was scrolling through that said something about 
a four with a third wing or with a three, three wing. wing. Mm-hmm. So, sure. I, I, and I assume that that means with like three leaning tendencies type uh-huh. things that would that kind yes. of first. So I don't, I would have to do a little bit more uh-huh. research more than the six minutes that I spent with this to understand okay. if I'm a three with a four wing or a four with a three wing. Okay. But I definitely think I exist in a lot of that space. And then the eight for sure. Uh, also, I thought I was, I was like, okay, team four is ready to have t-shirts made. And then I got sure. to eight and I was like, Oh, oh God. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> and frankly, <laughs> and frankly, I you know I really thought I was solid four, and then I got to eight again. The challenger, um, you know. But what was really interesting to me was the site that you kind of sent me to kind of overview some of this stuff. As you scroll down and you learn a little bit more about each of these numbers, it gets to a point where it's like, um, you know, this overview. It kind of says really healthy eights do these type of things. They're known for these type of things. Then it says average eights, and there's some plus and some minuses. Then it's like unhealthy, th- unhealthy eights. Yeah. And uh, and that exists in all, you know the the three and the four and then the eight every, uh, every category yep. had those listed yep. and I found myself relating mostly to the unhealthy uh, listings in all of those profiles that I related to so I really think that um, that's not a shock to me or anyone that I work with or anyone that's ever had to have I a serious roll. conversation I rolling but um but uh, yeah you know I think. A lot of those things talk about wanting to make a mark and wanting to be a leader and be seen as a leader. And I think mm-hmm. for a long time, I've fought for those things, um, but also huge amounts of self-doubt that mm-hmm. you kind of hide and squirrel away. Even as you're standing at the pulpit saying, I can do this and I'm the best. There's this thing inside of you that is so uh, uh, afraid of failure and so sure that it's it's on the next horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is such a huge part of me uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, for five years after Big Wheel, I described Big Wheel as a failure, you know, when we closed it. And, and everybody said, you know, oh, my God, You're out of your it's mind. not a failure. Yeah. yeah. And all I could see was that we failed. We closed because we had to because I didn't have any money and because we didn't do it. Um, it's only now that some distance has been away from it that I've been able to look back and kind of go like, well, we did some really great things. And uh, you know, even still the financial failure of it hurts, you know, and that hurt me and it hurt mm-hmm. friends of mine and it, you know, people, angel investors that had kind of believed in me and, and Kickstarter backers who we know we never published the big wheel cookbook and they haven't gotten there. I got one guy that's still like, every time I talk about a great recipe, he, you know, this guy DJ is like, when are you going to put the recipe in the book and send it to me, Tony? And I'm like, Oh my God, shut up. <laughs> Do you want your $45 yeah, back? Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but there were, while there were enough failures to fill a book, I think I now think of big wheel as a huge success mm-hmm. in the majority of its overarching theme. But but so much of the, those things relate to me. And uh, frankly, Dana, I've got to tell you, I don't know if you know this or not, but I am a deeply complicated person. So, um, <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> How yeah. many more drinks do I need? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Shocker. Uh, yeah. So I think you were pretty right, though. You know, uh, I exist in that three, four range somewhere in there. But then mm-hmm. eight also really spoke to me. And sure. you were saying, though, that people can be multiple, right? So you kind of have one number. Oh, yes. You can have multiple. So, okay. Just hold, <laughs> bear with me for a second. The Enneagram is this like cluster of so many things. And it's, it is, like I said, a rabbit hole. Cause I was right. not kidding. Like this rabbit uh, that here is smoking a cigarette. Um, very. Orlando artist Danny Sheehan drew the. Oh, yeah. yeah. Danny now lives in, uh, in New York City where he runs marathons. Um, yeah, he's a great artist, Danny yes, Sheehan. Yeah. I do remember Danny. Yep. 
So the Enneagram is like multi-layered, multi-faceted, multi-like you, it is a rabbit hole when you keep on digging, there's going to be so many things that you, that you could find out sure. and, and to learn about yourself. And just as humans, we're very dynamic, we're mm-hmm. changing all the time. Mm-hmm. And so the Enneagram to me was something that was like more than just like, are you an introvert or are you an extrovert? Like we are more than just like binary sure. things. Sure. Right. And so we're always changing. We're always evolving, but According to different theories, you, you're kind of like born as one number. And so you stay like if you find your, you're a base of this number, you're a base of this number gotcha. and you will grow, you will grow into health. You will grow into unhealth. You or you will disintegrate into unhealth. There are so many different layers as, as humans and sure. as different as we evolve as all the things. And so they kind of say that you have one base number, mm-hmm. but then your numbers also tied to a lot of different things. So I will, I'm going to give you a little cheat sheet or a little, oh. Like, because like, as we're talking, like these things, like I think just for me, it has been so helpful, I think for someone to put language to sometimes a lot of how I was feeling Mm -hmm. and that not everyone experiences the world around me the way that I do. And so that helped me to say like, oh, you're not crazy. Like you do feel (laughs) this way (laughs) and other people are coming at it from a very different perspective. And so I'm, I'm okay Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, or I might feel anger towards something where somebody else feels fear. And I'm like, I don't understand that. Like, why would you not be angry at this situation? So in eight, there's two different things. One, you have your, your, okay. First of all, in eight, when, when you move into health, like when you're in healthy, like you were saying, like you're unlikely, (laughs) that's not true Okay. because when you move into health, you actually move towards the number two, which is the helper. And so you love teaching people and you love helping people. And so like in your best version of yourself, Mm -hmm. you embody the best version of the two. Mm -hmm. And so an eight, having the confidence to teach somebody something is such a powerful and life-giving thing. Like you said, like your best self is you giving away your knowledge and teaching somebody how to be a better cook, whether sure. it's yeah. a basic level or on a very high tuned level. Mm-hmm. Eights and when they're unhealthy is... Tell me more. <laughs> right. <laughs> is they they kind of trend towards a five, which a five is called the investigator. But the five can also be very isolating. So when they're unhealthy, they want to isolate and they don't want to like share what's going on. Okay, I'm I'm definitely an eight. I'm not a four or three. I am that guy. I'm an eight. I'm an eight. So in in unhealth, they want to seclude themselves. Oh, so this is I am, I am like, a, is there, uh, I'm like, could I be an 8,000? Like, is there, like, it's like 8 million, 8,000 is definitely in that eight range because that's right. exactly me. Yeah. When yeah. I am, you know, my birthday, I turned 40 this year and we were saying I was supposed to go, go out with uh, a friend of mine and kind of celebratory right. evening. And I, you know, I was having all kinds of emotions. It was mother's day, which, you know, my mom, mom has passed and we were close. And so there are all these weird emotions. I've never really celebrated my birthday a whole lot because it's always around Mother's Day and growing up, my dad was always like, 
this week is about your mother, not about you. But also then being a chef, it was like Mother's Day is always the busiest day in the restaurant business. So I yeah. worked a lot of the birthdays in my life. So it was, I've, like, I've never had a birthday party. Uh, you know, no one has ever thrown me a birthday party. and I've never had a birthday party. And people find that really hard to believe. But so my birthday is just always very weird. You know what I mean? And finally, somebody wanted to celebrate my birthday with me. And I wasn't feeling great. I probably could have pushed through it. But I kind of like ditched plans in part because it was just like, I would rather be alone and I would almost rather be kind of pulled back, reserved. I'd almost rather sit in my own misery tonight uh, than go out and be celebrating or even just something low key. I just, I feel weird. So I just want to completely withdraw or like Mm -hmm. after I spend a night teaching. Yeah. I want to sit in a room alone. Don't talk to me. Don't anything or you know what I mean? Uh Nights in big wheel. Nights after crazy nights in the food truck of big wheel. It was like, everybody go home. I don't want to talk to you. I want to be alone. Uh-huh. I just don't want to be around anything. And I mean, not that that's always bad because we also need no. like our own space. Sure. That's not bad. But it's the regular default but for me. Yes. Yeah. Right. In, so, my, in my worst moments. In our worst moments, we go to isolation. Yeah. And we go to spaces where we don't want to let anybody in sure. to see the real pain that we could be facing. And so you seem to know a lot about eights. Are you an eight? Mm-hmm. You are an eight. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. But eights can manifest in different ways. Right. And so it's all about the underlying, <laughs> the underlying motivation. Sure. So eights just want to do something that is unique in the world. Right. And they want to be against the world. Sure. In a very strong way mm-hmm. to say like, I don't have to conform, right? They like, we get kind of want to give the middle finger to, to the, to what people are expecting of us. So, so interesting. So I am an eight wing nine, which is the wing nine is the peacemaker. And so I also want to make sure that everyone is also, you want everybody to be happy that you want to be different than everybody else. Is that what it is? It's, it's a, it's a conflict, right? And I feel it even in my body. Right. And so it is, it's part of, it's like for me, starting the dinner party project was like something that kind of no one's done before in Orlando. Uh-huh. Um, but then it's also about this place of welcoming and about being very aware of everybody and wanting to make sure that they're having a great experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm like very heightened mm-hmm. to that right. as well. But my underlying motivation, like Cole is an eight. Interesting. He's very, very strong eight right. um, in that way. And do eights with typically seven get along? Weight. They can, or, yeah. they cannot, because eights can have uh, very strong personalities. Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, we, you and I, have spent time in social settings together. Uh, we've played tennis together. We have called each other to make plans to go do simple social things together. Or if we see each other at social events, it's fine and it's great. Um, Cole and I have not, and mm-hmm. Cole's a good friend of ours, of course. Um, and. Again, if I saw Cole at a social setting, I'd be happy to say hi. And, mm-hmm. But Cole's not calling me, and frankly, I'm not calling Cole. Uh-huh. Uh, and a lot of that probably has to do with, you know, Cole's very music-oriented. And I'm, you know, sports. Not that, and, and I like music, and I'm sure Cole likes sports in some manner. But there are differences. Mm-hmm. You know, Cole oftentimes is very fashion-driven and, you know, has a lot of that stuff. And very cerebral and smart around, you mm-hmm. know, education. And then, you know, when he would be pre teaching from, you know, at church, it was just very cerebral teaching and, and, um, I can appreciate that, but that's certainly not how I am necessarily. I'm, you know, I'm a humor, let's use humor to teach and let's, you know, water it down mm-hmm. and Cole often will elevate it from my perspective as somebody who's been. Sure. So it's interesting to hear that Cole is also an eight. That's mm-hmm. really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, 
So I guess two examples. So yeah. Eights that do get along and eights that, again, don't not get along, but but aren't. In theory, we hopefully should get along with everybody, right? And every number. Yeah, in theory. In Dana. theory. Yeah, in theory. <laughs> that's the peacemaker, right? Yeah, I'm like, t- yeah that's what they told me in HR. Right? Yeah, like, got to get along with everybody. Yeah. So eights um, historically can be um, maybe not the easiest to get along with. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, uh-huh. according to everyone I've ever dated. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and most of the people I've attempted to be friends with. Right. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I find, yeah, relationships are hard for me because in my times where I'm struggling, what I want to do is withdraw. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point, the la- absolute last thing I want to do is work on myself or explore emotions. I want to my emotions to be go away. And I can, uh, you know... I, I, I'm very lucky. One of my good friends is a, a therapist. One of my ex-girlfriends is a therapist, a really good friend of mine now. And, you know, she has, you know, we've kind of talked through a lot of things. And one of the things that she says is like, I'm so good at like looking at things that I've said and emotions that I've had, but like in hindsight and mm-hmm. with arms length in between, you know, I can look at a fight fight that I have or an argument that I might've had with her, you know, two days ago or a week ago, and I can distill some things from that. But once I distill it, then I also want to move on. I'm happy to like evaluate it, talk about it, mm-hmm. but then I'm done with it. I want to move on, sure. on to the next. I'm over. I'm done. I don't want to continue to explore. Yeah. And also in the moment, it is not, it is not clear. It is not happening. Right. So, uh, yeah, that makes relationships tough. And it certainly, I can imagine. So, eight sometimes can die e- alone. Easily. Yeah. <laughs> stop. Sorry. Eights can easily divorce themselves from their emotions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, the reality is that we need all nine numbers. We need all the personality types. We need everybody to help us be the best version of ourselves. Sure. And, and with other people that can also help us to be more connected with our emotions. Sure. Because it's easier to, for an eight to not operate in that. But other people also, we have to operate sometimes in our bodies, in, in our emotions. Yeah. And having other people help us to connect. That's why it's so good to have different personality types that we can be friends with sure because if we were all the same thing the world would implode yeah yeah i'm gonna need you to send me a copy of this podcast when you do get it done because i'm at the point now where i don't believe that this is a real podcast i believe we're going through the motions and you have been sent here by a former therapist of mine <laughs> or an ex-girlfriend to work on me <laughs> uh because this is really hitting home this it's, is really interesting stuff and it's really it's incredible really interesting yeah. stuff yeah. yeah i'm i'm almost too afraid as an eight i'm too afraid to go look yeah. into this more uh-huh. because uh what will you find i'm i'm happy to well it's like what do you find and i think i've done a lot of work on myself as a human kind of since waterville maine to now there have been huge changes and many people kind of look at my story that i've come across and they kind of go like wow how did you survive or how did you how were you such a different person now than you were you know when you were 20 or when you were 17 how have you come that far you sure. know um, when so many people in my life in my life still hold on to staunch beliefs in x y and z my my belief system and my, the things i believe has gone back and forth on the needle 57 different times sure you know uh in, a, in what i would call a relatively healthy manner but certainly much different um it's but i am a little bit afraid to kind of dig deeper mm-hmm. because you kind of go Man, some of this feels like it's so. If I've been an eight my whole life, that certainly probably fits my whole life. But it's a little bit scary. like, how would I have changed it? How would I have I affected it? And that it just means 
as an eight, I then go like, well, so I've been failing at it my whole life. And I, oh, so I just have to work harder at it. Like, no, I got to do more hard work. Like, this is so hard, you know? Uh Um, And I kind of, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I'm happy to work hard on the things I want to work hard on. And I hate working hard on the things I don't want to work hard on. So I mean, that's humanity, right? I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Certainly for number eights, I'd be willing to bet. But part of it is like an unexamined life is not worth living in some in some regards. And sure. and I think for me being an eight and having language around some of the ways that I feel that other people don't. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, my God, I have found a landing pad to make me feel not so weird sure. and like different from everyone else. And so even... Though it may seem like a whole, you're opening Pandora's box, but what a beautiful journey to go down on so that you can also heal from some of those things where you're like, okay, yeah, I, now I see how maybe some people don't interact with me the way that I thought they would. Now I know why. And so now I can, if I really care about having relationships with people, I can have a better understanding of where they're coming from, maybe a better understanding of some of my blind spots and to be, if we, if we we're 40 now, we got to yeah, like look 40. at this stuff in the face, 40, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I will say this though. I also have started to kind of come to the realization and the acceptance point, frankly, that uh, I'm not going to be friends with everybody and I, mm-hmm. I'm probably not going to end up with a life partner. And, um, 22 year old me would be devastated to hear that 40 year old me is still single and is not particularly dating and having relational success and doesn't have a family with kids. Um, and 40 year old me is like, yeah, I mean, those things are great and that's fine. And if you were to ask me, would I like that still? I would probably most of the time, depending on the day of the week, say yes. But also a lot of me says like, okay, like I'm just accepting like, okay, it's fine. I don't necessarily need to be friends with everybody at this stage in life. Mm-hmm. Um, do I want more friends? Yes. Cause I, guys, I need more guys. I need more friends. Millvalleypasta.com. <laughs> <laughs> Buy my pasta. That's not, this is making my friend. But no, uh, but I, I, I don't have a lot of friends and I don't have a lot of relationships. And part of me is kind of okay with having a couple of great friends. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me when those friends are on vacation, when those friends are busy and they can't hang out with me on the times that I'm available. Yeah. It does kind of stink, you know? Um, so I, I, while I, while I, I'm always at a, I'm, I'm always a person that wants to get better in one way or another, mm-hmm. right? What am I working on with me? Am I working on my financial health by working more? Am I working on my culinary knowledge, which leads into financial health, which leads into fulfilling me professionally? Mm-hmm. I want to be working on that. Am I working on being a better teacher? Am I working on having a better home? Am I, it's like relationships for me often come last in part because in my line of work, chef being a chef for so many years and certainly not as much now as a teaching chef as it was a restaurant chef. But so often the thing that chefs sacrifice are relationships because you work yeah, so, so much. much. And I for so long have just written that off as, you know, uh, part of the casualty of my chosen line of work. Um, now, as I get older, I also have started to at times, frankly, resent my choice to become a chef. And it's weird in in one moment to feel like I was, I I am very lucky in the job that I have when I'm teaching classes regularly. I bet I don't go more than five classes that I teach without somebody walking up to me and saying, bro, this is what you were born to do. Literally with that phrase. And it's, 
it's incredibly fulfilling. It's a little bit like uh, what I imagine hard drugs are like, where it's like it feels great and then is incredibly fleeting. And then it's like all, like the journey back to it. But I've in in effort to get somebody to say that to me. And again, I think most of my friends would uh, have always been very supportive and very affirmative of me. But the relationship is always the first thing to go out the window when there's work staring me in the face. And part of it is, is relationship takes more work than dicing an onion does, you know? And I have said to people, mostly women that I am dating as we're breaking up, the work always gives back to me what I give it. And no one that I have a relationship with ever does in any way. So okay. what number is that Dana Rockmore? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay but 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 i you know i think a lot of times i avoid the relationship work because mm-hmm. it is so hard it and is. it's it gets really difficult so yeah yeah, yeah. uh ladies i am single come find me <laughs> on all the dating apps uh oh, so much to love um <laughs> so. i don't know if that's a joke about my size or um, no. yeah. um Wait, was that There's too deep? So... We're going to have to go back and edit that. Was that too deep? No. no okay. That's was... why I'm here. That's, oh, that's what we're going for. why I'm here. Yes. Oh, you lubed me up with a smoky cocktail. Yes. It was delicious. And uh-huh. got my, got rarely got my rare emotions flowing. It's called literally cocktails and conversation for a reason. It's not figuratively cocktails and conversation. It's, it's literally. literally. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Literally. Um, yeah. yeah. This is the stuff I like live for. This oh. is like my, like I, uh, yeah. Stories are a, part of my passion sure right for sure, yeah. so getting people to share theirs and then like i think the the vast the not the vast majority the vast like we have so we have vastly different stories but then when we find ourselves in other people's stories sure. and we're like i relate to that yeah and i've been through that i've been through the hard point i've been through the hard point of like for me like connecting with my emotions sure that's something that's something i've had to work on right yeah. And so I think when we hear about it, it makes it a little more normal. And that's what I want to do is just to say, like, we've all been through a lot of different things and we also operate very differently. But hearing people's stories, we find ourselves in those stories and we can also have compassion for people in their story, you know, no matter what it is. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny. Compassion is such an interesting word. I am, I'm very careful who I dole out compassion to. I don't know why I, I, uh, the people I give compassion to all the compassion and understanding in the world uh-huh. and the people I don't, who I deem somehow just aren't worthy of compassion. You get nothing. Uh, <laughs> and I don't, it's a weird thing inside of me and, and you know, people can kind of switch which side of that fence they're on, mm-hmm. you know, with their actions or with my reaction to their actions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a, it's a weird internal decision I make, but compassion is such an interesting word because again, compassion to me feels like so much work. Uh, mm where you have to you have to take something in and you have to say this makes me upset but I'm going to give compassion to this person or I'm going to give them grace. I think grace kind of falls under that that umbrella of compassion, right? And yeah. or forgiveness or leeway or you know wide berth yeah. or um and it's it's very interesting. You know, I employ a lot of these kind of ideas when I'm teaching. Anybody that I'm teaching you get all the compa- you burnt it it's okay you're going to be fine right. you do this it's okay it's so difficult though for me in my personal life to kind of 
dole that out and give that out. And, mm-hmm. um, that would be something that You'll I would totally to explore about... if I was yeah. <laughs> willing to. Perfect. <laughs> so. so we're going to move on to the last topic, which is actually my favorite one. Oh, um, shoes. Yes. Yeah, I love shoes. <laughs> I love shoes. <laughs> uh, which is actually rest. Rest. Yes. Oh, God. Which this, is is... The, this is the one I'm worst at. Uh-huh. Yeah. So a lot of people are like, ooh, but, um, you know, rest is something that I don't think we talk about enough or that we do enough <laughs> and um, how purposeful it is and how creativity like lives and in, in, and grows in rest. And yeah. rest can be, you know, the Sabbath is literally to stop working, right? Sure. Just stopping and resting can look like a lot of different things. It can look like play. It can look like discovery. It can look like physical resting. It can look like enjoyment. Um, That was a really interesting concept when, when I, when we went to the same church together in Orlando called status. And uh, I would imagine most people who are listening to this are probably familiar with that. If, if again, if anybody is still listening (laughs) and it was really interesting to me when they talk about the Sabbath, not being necessarily like the Sunday where it's Mm -hmm. the church day. So you don't do it. It was, it was more of an idea of, you know, maybe Wednesday is your Sabbath and it's, it's, yeah. Or maybe even, even it's just the first half of Tuesday Mm -hmm. or something like that. And so it was a really interesting concept to me. I love, that's what I loved about status. There were so many great teaching moments that were there. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting concept. It kind of blew my mind at the time. Cause of course I grew up just thinking like, I remember literally going to a, a March, you know, a protesting March when I was probably six or seven years old, when they started to open the grocery store on Sunday. I'm like, our church was like against opening the grocery store on Sunday. Like it's the Sabbath stores shouldn't be open on Sundays. Lord. Um, yeah, it was, you know, the week before the anti-abortion March that I was in when I was six or seven, like right. crazy town. But it, you know, it, it had always town. been like the Sunday, Sunday's the Sabbath. This right. is what we do. And, and so it was really interesting. What are some practices that you have adopted when it comes to rest or the Sabbath? Uh, none. Uh, I have, I work myself to, I'm going to, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't rest. Uh, rest has been, um, difficult for me in my life, uh, as a person who's constantly afraid of failure, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is if you work harder, you know, the harder you work, the more you'll kind of be rewarded and kind of the more you'll get, um, add to that. I have had sleep apnea since I was probably, I don't know, 16, 17, pretty severely, um, only diagnosed in the last year. Oh. So probably since I was 16 or 17, I have not gone to bed and woken up feeling rested, uh, my entire life. It was like, I laid down, I went to bed, but I woke up and it was, uh, impossible to like wake up and I, I would just wake up exhausted. Um, I actually, so, so if we're talking about physical rest, not mental rest and not kind of this concept of rest, but literally physical sleep and resting right? for 20 plus years of my life, I have not slept at night properly. Um, I did a sleep study last year during COVID and in, uh, they said you have to do a minimum of six hours of sleep a night. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if I have time to do six hours of sleep. What are you talking about? And they're like, well, you can do up to How 10. How much do you usually sleep? I sleep about six hours a night. But it was like, there was something going on that week. And I was like, oh, God, like, I, I, I'm doing this thing. I, I, okay, I'll do six. I'll get six. It's fine. Okay. Like, I had to be like, okay, you have to get six, you know. Um, I stopped breathing uh, something like 285 times, including at one point for 77 seconds. Holy moly. 
my blood oxygen level, anything below like 92, 90 to 92% your blood oxygen level can be like dangerous. My blood oxygen level got down to 72% at one point. The nurse was like, between now and when you receive your CPAP machine, you need to sleep upright in a chair because at I'm surprised you have not had a stroke at this point. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Holy shit. Yeah. So, uh, so only for about a year have I had a CPAP machine that helps me breathe when I'm sleeping. And that certainly has helped me feel more rested when I wake up. It, it allows me to breathe. So, and, um, you know, in the uh, amount of times, you know, I frequently or infrequently will have uh, slumber parties with more than one person of various genders in my room at once. It's not just one person that's a female. This shouldn't go on the record, actually. <laughs> but um, the people who end up sleeping in the same room as me on you know, for whatever reason, you're okay. are like, oh my God, I want to slice your throat open with a knife. Your snoring is so bad and have subsequently said like, oh my God, this is like the greatest thing. You getting a CPAP right. means I'm allowed to be in the same room as you. So, uh, so like from the physical rest standpoint, that is something that has been a huge change for me. Um, and while I wake up rested, I still, I'm a night owl. I'm 1 million percent. Okay. Uh, I am rarely in bed before 2 a.m. Uh, and often it's 2.30 or 3. Um, and in an attempt to be uh, society, believe it or not, there's a huge thing I was reading on Reddit about society's slant and bias against people who prefer to be night owls. It's much more the underlying theme is that people who wake up early and people who you know, go to bed early and wake up early are just better people and they're more successful. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, much of society is slanted in that manner. You know, Um, it's really hard for me. uh, If I, if I say I have a morning class at the hotel that I've got to be at, and I know I have to be at work at 8 a.m. because I have employees coming. I have no problem waking up and being at the hotel at 8 a.m. But if I don't have a class and I'm just supposed to work in the office and I'm supposed to be at the office sometime between nine and 10, I will not get my ass out of bed until like 925 when I have to run into the shower and like hightail it out of here to be at work for five past 10 because like subconsciously I know I don't really have to be there. It's just like a bunch of office work. So if I'm beholden to somebody to be somewhere at X time, I have no problem waking up. up. Yeah. And it's waking up is no problem. But there's something in me that if I don't, it is impossible for me to wake up. And even if I do wake up, so uh, this morning... I knew you were coming to visit. So I said to myself, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to clean the apartment a little bit, vacuum, or wipe down the stove, organize the bathroom a little bit, you know, wipe down dust. I got to dust the TV stand. I was up last night until 2.15, 2.30 by the time I finally crashed. And I said, well, Dana, I'm supposed to meet Dana for lunch at noon. I want to be up by 8.15 to kind of get up an hour and a half cleaning, two hours cleaning, be okay. I'm kind of slow play it. I didn't get out of bed until 10.30. You know, and so like meeting you when you were like, yeah, let's meet for lunch at noon. Yeah. Noon confirmed. It was like, oh, God, that's only an hour and a half. How much am I going to be able to get done in an hour and a half? Oh, no. You know, I was hoping to get those deliveries done. Some puzzle deliveries done before we had lunch. Nope. And I was like, by the way, I didn't do these puzzle deliveries. You got to come with me. So uh, so so rest for me has never been the priority. And in fact, something that is kind of celebrated in the chef world is how much abuse you can take. Right. Just abuse in general. And much like of 17 that. 17 hour days. Yeah. Much of that is. Uh, so messed up. The, the least amount of rest. I mean, in conjunction with like, how many insults can I hurl at you? I mean, you know, there are really abusive things that happen in the restaurant business. Less now than ever before, but uh, still horrible things. 
but yeah, so yeah, the idea of uh, of me teaching a night class and being at work, even mm-hmm. at work at the hotel until 1230 or 1am by the time I wrap up with a class and then having a morning class the next day that I got to be at work at 8am. Like nobody blinks an eye at that. Like nobody's right. like, oh gosh, like, oh, holy cow. I mean, it's just What normal. if you had 24 hours to yourself, your ideal day of rest, it could be here, it could be anywhere, money is of no issue. Yeah. If you literally could just do one day of Tony Adams' greatest hits, <laughs> Whatever, fishing, golfing, drinking. Yeah, I mean, probably a little sleeping. bit of all of those things. What, what e- eating you- food I didn't have to cook, golfing, uh-huh. fishing. Yeah, all that stuff is great. The problem is, is that you know when I moved to Nantucket, where the day off activity is simply go to the beach. I would be so exhausted. I typically am a like if you wanted to go to the beach with me right now, I couldn't go to the beach and like sit and just hang. And just talk or just whatever. I would be like, oh, let's go on a walk. Let's. I got to go fishing. Uh, I want to go to the rocks over there and check out what's going on over there. Like, uh, you know, I'm people watching. I'm doing all these things. It's really hard for me to shut down. Really super hard for me to shut down. Because I find that when I do shut down at that level, it is so far away from what it takes to operate when you're as tired as I am. And when you work as much as I am, I'm, I could always, like I have no problems falling asleep ever. Right. I don't go to bed till 2am cause I don't feel tired. But if I, if I crawled into bed at 11 PM, I would be asleep at like 1103. Like that's just what it would be, you know? So rest has never been a priority. And it doesn't have to be physical rest. It could be just no, right. like anything. Well, and for me, it's really weird. Uh, watching TV for me is, like when I need to, when I need to slow down, mm-hmm. when I am like end of the day, what is my wind down? Come home, I sit on the couch and I watch TV. And sure. that also is something that kind of gets poo-pooed a lot. I love it. I I am proud yeah. to love watching TV. Same here. And, it's, and I don't, it's not that I don't care what it is. It's that it's something that allows, it's, it's loud off. enough that I can just shut my brain yeah. off. And, you know, in any given night, I am teaching people, I am entertaining people, their ultimate happiness and hospitality is my concern. I am working with employees. I'm making sure I have enough orders for the next day. Did I fill out the schedule? Did I file my expense report? You know, is the pasta drying? Is the pasta cracking? Did I send out those pasta orders? Do I have enough gas to get there and back? You know, what's the shipping? Where did that one order come from? I mean, it's all of these things, mm-hmm. right? When I get home at the end of the night, yes, I want to check out. Check out. Yeah. And for me and my family, frankly, for a long time, it's always been, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, and so even to this day, I've had my my folks come out and visit me. My dad and his wife um, uh, came out to visit me in San Francisco. We went, we had a nice dinner. And afterwards, it's like, what do you need to do? It's like, let's just go back and watch a movie. And we like literally spent two hours in his hotel room in San Francisco watching a movie like on Netflix and it, it like in looking at it, it kind of feels like, wow, man, I'd love to be able to show you guys around or, you know, they're not drinkers. So it's like, what do you do at, a, you know, 10 30 PM in San Francisco? There's not a whole lot, you know, for non drinkers or people, but, but it did, it was just kind of like, Oh man, this kind of stinks. But at the end of the day, like, that's great. I'm also mm-hmm. happy to just do nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when it, if I'm doing nothing, the only thing that lets me really do nothing and I'm okay, I, I'm not like, and I do often feel guilty about it, but it's like watch TV. Yeah. So I have no shame there. I know yeah. shame there. I've got, I, I love, a, I do it, but I feel shamed. shamed. Oh no, <laughs> not me. You're talking to the wrong girl. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's, that's my mess, I guess, you know, yeah. but 
Yeah, I love TV. And it's especially so. here in San Francisco. That's not something you can really or in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, I live just in San Francisco. Yeah, it's like you're not allowed to say I love watching TV. No. Like the brag is, is I don't have a TV or I don't really watch TV or I'd much rather read a book or I'd much rather be out dancing or I'd much rather be out listening to music or or I'd love, much rather be on a hike. I'd rather go to bed early and then wake up at 5 a.m. and go on a hike. We'll get and ready. It's like, like what are you what are you high like you got to be high you're in the bay but also no like no i don't you know yeah that's not what i want to do so um do you have any mantras or mo's that you try to live your life by or any piece of wisdom that you would leave with us um you know, I don't know if I could distill it down to one phrase. I mean, I think there are a lot of things. Uh, I've been really lucky to meet a lot of incredible people in my life that are so much different than me. And the early part of my life, so much was made of trying to get all of the people that were different to be exactly like me. Come uh, follow this religion. Come stop being gay or stop uh, doing those things that we have deemed bad and poor and immoral. Yikes. Yeah. And it was this like fight against doing those things. And I think I'm at a place in life right now where so much of me, like, I don't want people to be doing illegal things. I don't want people to be doing things that are hurting other people. I, I kind of go though, like, man, let people, let people be, let live people be themselves. Live. Yeah. You know, let people be themselves. You want to, you, you sleep with who you want to sleep with. You know what I mean? Like, and when you want to sleep with them, like if you got a, a marriage thing, that's an open marriage or a, a polyamorous thing or a non-monogamous thing, like, okay, I may not understand it. That's not, may not be the best thing for me, but you want to do it. doesn't hurt me. Okay, great. I don't care. You know, um, you want to smoke tons of weed. Great. You want to drop acid again. Those aren't my things. Go ahead, do it. It's not hurting me. It's fine. Now you do those things, you get behind the wheel of a car. That's a completely different story, right? But I, I just have met so many people that are so much different than me. And when I was 10, I thought that was a really, I thought those were then bad people mm -hmm. because we are good Christian people. Mm -hmm. We are good Christian white people who work hard for what we have. And oh. those people who aren't working for what they have on welfare, they're bad people. Those people who do smoke cigarettes, they're bad people. Those people that do drink beer and have, drink whiskey, they are bad people. Those people that are gay are bad people. And those people that don't go to church are bad people. And it was so exhausting. You know, even mm -hmm. as a 10 year old kid trying to figure out mm -hmm. who was good and who was bad. And uh, what I found in my life is most everybody is pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that's just kind of where I'm at in life these days. Yeah. You know, um, I want to contribute to people's happiness. I'd like them to contribute to mine um, as difficult as that may be. Um, and certainly I have disagreements with people and all of that. But, you know, it's the political landscape is a nightmare and I certainly don't want to get into that now, but that's a nightmare. And there's a part where it's kind of like, uh, if you're not infringing on someone else, let it rip. Live you know? and let live. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's only when you want to infringe on other people at that point, mm. we're going to have a talk, but sure. and it's not even to talk about what I want. Let's talk about what's best for the greater society, you know? So, uh, distilled down to one sentence. Yeah. I can live and let live maybe, um, you know, uh, everybody's happiness is different just because my happiness doesn't look like your happiness. And just because my happiness often doesn't look like happiness to me <laughs> in the moment, 
doesn't mean that I'm not happy making pasta in my free time for mm. a business that I then complain about. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I then go like, oh my God, all my free time is making pasta. But there's a part of me that really loves it too. Yeah. I may not love having to make pasta, but I love handing that bag of pasta to somebody. And so. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. I do what yeah. I can, you know. Thanks for so, sharing. Yeah. Well, thanks for things. having me. This is great. This, this was, yeah. you know, I think you said it an hour or so, but we've gone, I don't know. I don't know how to read the numbers on your fancy screen. We've gone a while here. Uh, um, we should have made two cocktails. We should have back we, cocktails. <laughs> we'll have another one after that. I guess so. Uh, I'd also, yes. uh, do you, I need the number of a good therapist, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> um, if we were to find you online, where would people find you? Yeah. Check out my stuff. Uh, my socials, most of my socials can be found. Uh, my personal social and Instagram at, T-O-N-Y-Y-1-3 Tony with an extra Y-1-3 I was going to have I started with Tony A-1-3 My last name Adams Tony A But uh, it looks like Tanya And uh, <laughs> that, is, that doesn't work for me <laughs> Hey Tanya I got a lot of DMs Of some really weird pictures When I first got on Instagram So I changed it to Tony With an extra Y-1-3 Of course Mill Valley Pasta uh-huh. Is my Instagram But also MillValleyPasta.com uh, You can find me online there With all my pasta products um, If you are out Check here In there. Southern California Or in Northern California California. Cool. If you're out here in Southern California, you're in the wrong part of California because I live in Northern California. If you're out here in Northern California, uh, I'm the cooking school director at Cavallo Point Lodge right in the shadow of the Golden Gate Bridge uh, in Sausalito, California. We do corporate uh, cooking classes and corporate retreats. And, uh, you know, we do have some public cooking classes as well. So check out the website, cavallopoint.com. Otherwise, find me around Northern California, farmer's markets and... Uh, you know, track me down that way. Um, soon to be launching uh, Northern California's only chapter of uh, Chippendale's Big and Tall. I'm the big. We got another guy that's the tall. No, no I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I'm kicking around. Mill Valley Pasta. You'll be around all night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's the part that will get cut. Good news, podcast guys. You, you only have to edit the last three minutes of, of the pod today. So, thank you. Thank you. For hosting me yeah. about Feed Me. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks. So. Thanks for coming. Thanks for it's great to see you. And uh yeah. you know, uh thanks to anybody that would ever listen to this, whether it's <laughs> the editing guys or you or yeah. me. It's either way, it's gone into the uh the annals of history, not the annals of history, the thank annals you. of history, right? One mm-hmm. way or the other. So um yeah, shout out to all the people that we talked about. Thank thanks to you guys and yeah. we'll see you next time thanks until thanks. the next time thank you a million times over for listening to cocktails and conversation podcast i hope you have enjoyed all of it if you have would you do me a huge favor and rate comment and subscribe for more cocktails and conversations 